Welcome to another episode of the Room for Nuance podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Brooks. Good job, man. You, we, we already got a good little... Synergy. Movie simpatico. <laughs> uh, Brooks, will you open us in prayer, brother? Yeah. Yeah. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation that comes through you. We pray for this time. May it be uplifting. May it be edifying. May it be encouraging to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Brooks, you are not in the business of glorifying yourself. Nevertheless, people are tuning in to listen to me have a conversation with you. And some people may not know who you are. So can you, first of all, tell us uh, your testimony? Probably the most important thing about you, right? How you came to know Jesus. Yeah. Uh, So I was raised uh, on the mission field in the country of Papua New Guinea, and my mother and father would uh, walk me through different aspects of the redemptive analogies, the salvation story when I was a kid. And uh, I remember right around, I mean, I was pretty young. I think it was somewhere, I don't remember the exact age, but somewhere between uh, six and seven, uh, just remember hearing and understanding, not all the implications, but understanding the gospel. And from that time uh, forward, understanding that, man, I, I'm, I'm saved from my sins. I no longer am a child of <clears throat> darkness. I'm a child of the light by God's good grace. And so when I was a kid, I understood that. I went to boarding school a lot, so I had different dorm parents mm. that helped uh, kind of cement that understanding in me. Obviously, I didn't understand a lot of the aspects of it, but when I was a kid, that was kind of my uh, salvation understanding. As they were working with a, a people group, I was also coming to an understanding of salvation. Wow. You know, this is not the first time I've heard about missionary children growing up on the mission field, going to boarding school. That's mm-hmm. fairly common? Or used to used be to more be? common. Yeah, not very common today, but Uh-oh. very common in earlier days. Why do you think that's changed? Uh, the rise of homeschooling curriculum. Homeschooling curriculum mm. is so much better. There's a lot of bad stories, too, from boarding schools, especially MK yeah. boarding schools. So yeah. those two factors primarily. Is that what you went to, a missionary kids boarding school? Yeah, we had, it was a Commonwealth boarding school. So the whole Commonwealth system, British, Australian, that kind of thing. But uh, it was primarily for missionary kids, but it had some kids of like uh, oil and gas workers, huh. uh, town workers, that kind of thing. So but it, at the time, it was the third largest missionary school in the world. Wow. Yeah. W- was that, that was in Papua New Guinea? That was in Papua New Guinea, yeah. What, was it hard for you? Was that tough as a kid being away from your parents and your family? Yeah. I mean, it was, so I usually describe, uh, so I went when I was in first grade. So okay. first grade, got on an airplane, flew for two hours with a bunch of other kids. Um, and then no siblings, uh, eventually I had a sibling come up when, uh, my brother came up when okay. he was in third grade. And then later on my sister came, but I went early cause it was just, that was all that you had. There were right. no good homeschooling options. So yeah. I went first through 12th. I usually describe first through fifth as like Lord of the flies. And then <laughs> yeah. sixth through 12th is some of the best years of my life. Like really? it was, yeah, it was just, uh, it was a very different environment. It was kind of like college for elementary kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, how often would you go home? So I'd go up for three months, come back for a month, up for three, and then back for two. That was kind of like the elementary years. And then they they shortened the semesters a little. So you would only go for about two and a half months once you hit high school. Was that weird going in between these two worlds? Because what kids tend to crave most is stability, routine. Yeah. That I mean, it can be kind of a macro routine, but I imagine yeah. it must have been pretty jarring. 
It was different. I mean, you would go up for long enough periods of time to where you'd get, I mean, by the time you hit high school, you had sports going on, you had mm-hmm. dorm brothers, you had dorm sisters. Um, and I, I had a really, my, my folks were tuned in really well. So when okay. we came home, uh, we had like these parties that we were coming back and mom would make yeah. uh, these certain kind of tacos. And yeah, it was just, hey. it, was, uh, it, was, it was a different way to grow up. But I, I remember getting on the plane, having mud on my feet from the tribe and then making it up to boarding school and then going up uh, and playing our first basketball game that night and still having like the little bit of mud on my calves with, at the end of the game. And just like, wow. man, you're transitioning worlds really fast. It was have, sorry, have you talked to your parents about this since you've become an adult, you know, oh, yeah. what was this like for you? What, what did they say? Oh, I mean, hands down, the hardest thing that my mother and father went through was putting us on that plane when right. we were kids. Like that yeah. was, it wasn't anything that we enjoyed, especially the leave takings. Like yeah. that was really hard. Yeah. But I mean, my dad instilled in us by God's grace, a, a really clear vision. He would always put us on the plane. We'd have a time of prayers. We could hear the plane circling and then it would come into land. <laughs> And he would say some version of, hey, someday this will all be worth it. Someday mm-hmm. it'll all be worth it. And just that constant pointing to there, there's something bigger than just getting on airplanes and even what we're doing here and going up to boarding. There's something eternal about these yeah. sacrifices that that were really hard for my parents. So he made it clear, like, we're doing this for the gospel. Mm-hmm. You never had any doubt about that as a child. Zero. Now, I didn't understand the full implications sure. of that when I'm six years old getting on there. I'm just thinking, man, I'm heading up to the place where there's a whole bunch of other people that speak English. Like, it's yeah. just, it was a different understanding. But the older you got, and I, I had a real soft spot for my mother who, man, this was... I could see tearing her heart out. And when yeah. she put all three of her kids on that airplane and we were all heading off together, those are special sacrifices that I, I don't think anything in this world can make up for. But praise right. God, we're not people yeah. of this world. And it also probably had this unique like catechesis effect of training you to believe what the Bible tells you about who you are as a Christian, that you're a stranger, you're an exile. A lot of Christians who, um, and not that there's anything wrong with this experience, it's a good experience, but who are born, raised, live, work, die in the same place, the idea that they are strangers in this land is kind of hard for them to wrap their minds around, right? But you're you're not only not in where you're from, you're in on the mission field, and then you can't even really make your home there. You have to be at a boarding school. I mean, that must have really driven that truth home to you. Yeah, I think it drove that truth home and it made what my folks were doing come alive to us. Like yeah. my my dad was really good about, hey man, you go up there, don't get yourself. In. I was the one of, uh, we had the three of us, I got in trouble the most. And so he's just like, hey, you stay out of trouble. <laughs> you're going to help the work down here so much more. Just stay yeah. out of trouble, get good grades. That's your part on this team right now. Man, you go up there and just do what you're supposed to do. But it made that kind of come alive. And even though I did knucklehead junior high and high school things, there was still this idea that, hey, we're here for something greater. And I think that resonated with me all through my younger and even college years. I want to come back and talk about your dad in a minute because he's a trip. And I love the fact that he was just this faithful gospel missionary. And I think sometimes when we think about a missionary, we have a particular, it's the same thing with a pastor, Mm -hmm. right? We have a particular vision of what they must be like personality and disposition wise. You know what? Let's just talk about it right now. (laughs) Okay. And 
I think one of the reasons why I appreciate your dad so much, though I'm not, I'm, I don't know him super well, yeah. is because he encourages me because I'm very atypical, both mm. as a missionary and a pastor. Uh, he's fun. He's sarcastic. You know, he's, <laughs> he pushes, you know, the limits. And uh, I just being around him is a hoot, man. Oh, he's <clears throat> so myself and most of the radius board describe him as Martin Luther. Like he is mm. everything. I mean, he is a hard charger. I don't think. Second to John Piper, I think he's the guy that's maybe, that I know of, that's challenged more people into giving their life for missions. Wow. Just because he speaks at these college groups and he speaks at these perspectives classes. Now, perspectives with an asterisk. Like, there's good-sized perspectives. Sure. And then there's some some wonky but stuff But he's in happy too. to go wherever they'll let him. Because he gets to right. kind of shape the program. Right. But what he's able to do, and you're right, man, he is spicy. The amount of emails that I get yeah. meeting Radius— most of those emails <laughs> circle around something dad did in some service, usually in a positive environment. So wow. occasionally you'll get a couple of little sneak through, but yeah, oh, he's just, sure. he's a powerful personality. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, back to you growing up on the mission field. Mm -hmm. uh, at what age did you move to Papua New Guinea? So I was two when we okay. moved to New Guinea. And how long, or were you able to get the tribal dialect? Were you able yeah. to get the language of the people from yep. a very early age? Just grew up with it. It was kind of yeah. like English and it was the Iteti people simultaneously. Yeah. So, because you're with them so much. Right. So when you went back as an adult, it wasn't, you did, language acquisition was not really an issue for you. It wasn't an issue as far as the national language goes. Okay. So we we already had the national language. Then we learned the Iteti language. Okay. So when I went back, I still had the national language, but went to a completely different people group. And right. so had to learn that language from scratch. How dissimilar was it? Oh, man. It's like French to English. Yeah. Like it was yeah. pretty I, dissimilar. I try to explain that to people about uh, different languages in Peru. You, yeah. you learn the lingua franca, Spanish. Yep. And they're like, oh, and then that must have been pretty close to the tribal language. Yes. It's like not close at all. No. It's really hard. Yeah. I think people have a idea that because they have Google Translate or, I don't know, Lingua Links, that somehow languages are just easily surmounted. Most of the languages that people got to know, like where you went, where a lot of these people mm -hmm. go, where there is no gospel and especially no church, those are tough languages. Yeah. They're, they're the ones that are left for a reason. They're, That's right. they're not yeah. like, oh, it's random. No, no, no. There's no. actually a reason why they're the last ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to come back and talk more about missionary language stuff yeah. later. Um, when you were on the mission field as a child or at the boarding school, did you ever, because sometimes in that situation you grow up, even if there's no bitterness, you go, I definitely don't want to do this. Yeah. I definitely don't want to be a missionary. Were you thinking at all about missions as after you became a Christian, as you were growing up on the mission field? I was thinking about it, but honestly, like I, I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I had a, a Semper five. <laughs> exactly. I had a basketball coach that I just thought the world of, and he was an ex Marine and he would put us through drills. I mean, we had three different types of press, all yeah. this kind of stuff. And so he, I looked up to him a lot and I just, uh, from a distance, and MKs can go either way on this. They can either go, hey, they have a, an affinity, uh, some kind of emotion towards their home country, or they push away from it and they yeah. kind of go towards the country where they're raised in. And so I kind of went the other way and was just like, hey, I'm going to go here. And my dad ended up talking me out of that and just said, hey, do two years in college, you do that, and yeah. I'll give you my blessing to join the Corps, but just give me two years in yeah. college. So. I went there, 
met my wife, I think the fourth day of college, and I waved bye-bye to the Marine Corps that day. Nice. So, yeah. Dad, dad wins again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's another story. <laughs> um, well, okay, so let's talk about how you began to aspire to serve as a missionary because from what I remember you telling me when we were together in San Diego, you um, you were kind of crushing it in the civilian sector, kind of living the American dream. Yeah, I <clears throat> good word choice, aspire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd gotten a degree in business and then I hit on this company that was looking to hire young uh, kind of up and coming guys in their marketing and in their finance department. And so I went through a whole battery of tests, mostly in Europe. This was a Dutch company. And so through a whole bunch of things, people getting fired and hired, just the providence of God. Yeah. Um, rose through kind of the channels pretty fast and ended up as the chief financial officer of the company. And I'm in my early 20s. Mm. And just, um, yeah, Nina and I, we were thinking about missions, but it wasn't a front burner thought for us. It was much more, okay, we're a part of Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church and we're going to work at this job and maybe we'll retire in our late 30s or something like that. Like it was just, everything was kind of laying out pretty clear for us. So yeah. By God's grace, we kept reading our Bibles and we kept seeing things. And we started thinking, and is this all there is? Like acquiring jet skis and Nina had a really nice Mercedes and we were looking at private school for our son. And is this all there is or is there something more to this? And man, through the encouragement of our church elders, and this is where to me, if we weren't so close to our local church at that time, I think we probably would have just slipped off into the, hey, we'll... We'll support 12 missionaries and we'll just stay here and live the American dream. And right. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But I mean, for us to know, hey, we should step a little bit more. We should look yeah. at something to do that would probably be more valuable in eternal calculations. Yeah. It, it would have been hard for us, I think, when we reached our 80s or 90s to look back and not have some regret. Right. Yeah. Um, so what, were you both on the same page when you were thinking through that or was there one kind of galloping ahead a few steps? I think we were pretty close to the same page. Yeah. We, I, I was maybe dragging my feet a little bit cause I'm bouncing back and forth between the Netherlands and San Diego oh. and just looking at, cause this was a Dutch company yeah, and looking at what we could have. And I, I know everything from growing up over there, yeah. like what we're talking about possibly doing. And she's much more like, man, let's, let's think through this in a long term. Are we going to raise our son in this way? Is this really what we're going to do? Right. And so she was maybe a couple steps ahead of me, but again, God in his grace landed us in a really good church and that church and their leadership really helped steer us that pretty pivotal time in our life. Praise God. Okay. So what did it look like? You, you, you sell the bins and then you head to the mission field to walk us through that process. Yeah, so I walked into my boss's office, gave him my 30-day notice. He asked, what company are we losing you to? And I said, well, right. how much will it take to keep you? Right? <laughs> exactly. Kind of thing, yeah. And no, 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 we're going to do this missions thing. And then he's like, I mean, just starts listing off literally on a whiteboard behind us all the things that we're giving up. Right. And then starts listing like my son's name and like his future and all this mm. kind of, and I'm just stuff that you lay in bed at night thinking about. Mm. And so we walked away from that by God, that was the biggest hurdle. And then we went through two years of training. We had to learn how, how do you break down a language? Because if we were going to go, we wanted to go somewhere where the gospel hadn't been, where there was no church among that language group. Right. And so we had to learn how to break down a language that had never been written down before. 
<clears throat> had no had no helps, had no language school. We had to learn how to build an airfield. We had to learn how to do solar panels. We had to learn how to do translation. If you're going to translate the Bible into these languages, this is going to take some particular skill sets, got some Greek and a little bit of Hebrew under my belt and stuff mm. like that. And so that was two years of training. And yeah. then we finally got on the plane a few months after that. Wow. Okay. So you get on the plane. Nina, has Nina been to the mission field by this point? Yeah. So when we're engaged to be married, again, a good call by my old man. Uh, he was like, you got to bring this girl out here because if she doesn't see this, she's not going to ha have kind of a frame of reference for where you grew up and right. kind of who you are. So right. when we were engaged, she came over, um, met my mom and dad. So we flew into this little dirt airfield that they helped yeah. build with the Teddy tribe there yeah. and uh, met them. So she knew kind of the country, but going back as an adult was radically different right. than being a kid. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're knees knocking, tears flowing, getting on the airport or getting on the airplane yeah. at LAX. Like that was... No kids? No, we had our son. He was okay. two years old at okay. that time. So we're heading over there and he's yeah. right around the same age I was. Probably we took our six-month-old daughter with us in mm. the jungle. I'm sure you guys got a lot of interesting advice oh please yeah from well-intentioned people of people course. that love the lord jesus but they're yeah. just like there's got to be a, a different path for you i mean all the finance stuff there was about half of our church that was really opposed to it but by mm -hmm. god's grace we had good church leaders yeah. and they they got the vote yeah good so you get on the plane you get over there what do you do? What's what's step number one? Yeah, so step number one is my wife's got to learn the country language. So Melanesian <coughs> pigeon, she's got to know that. Like if you're going to take the gospel, a lot of people don't realize this. If you're going to take the gospel to an unreached language group, people like to use the language of unreached people groups. I don't like that language at all. We'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but unreached language group, much more objective. Okay. You got to know two languages. You got to know the language of the country. So sometimes that's Mandarin, sometimes that's Arabic, sometimes right. that's Spanish. Right. In our case, it's Melanesian pigeon. Whatever the trade language Whatever is. Whatever the trade language is. Yeah. This is the language to work with government officials, right. to buy, to sell, to kind of interact with airline pilots, that yeah. kind of thing. And then you got to learn the language of the unreached language. Group. Right. And so that's what we did. And we were just there kind of orientating to the country. <coughs> She's learning the language. I'm brushing up on it again. That was about a year for us. Not in a village. No. You're in a city somewhere? We're in a coastal town called Wewak, which is right on the coast. And so okay. Papua New Guinea has this unique history. It's where the allies turned back the Japanese in World War II. Yeah. So it has all of this kind of history. And WeWAC was a big turning point. Uh, so I bet that was pretty cool. Oh, man. I mean, if you fly into the airfield today, you'll see pock marks on the side of the airfield where the bombs from the Allies and the Japanese, because yeah. it was a turning point airstrip, yeah. are on the side. Wow. Okay, so you're a year of doing language work. Um, again, a lot of this conversation is going to be me just sort of processing your experience through my experience, and then yeah. we can just riff off of that. So. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the way Amber and I learned language. Uh, there was a, it was very easy for me mm. and it was very hard for my wife. Mm. How was it for you guys? Were you both on the same page? Yeah. Uh, we, sorry, progress wise. Yeah. Probably different. I mean, the first language, definitely different because I'm starting are, like 90% yeah, right. of the way there. She's starting from zero. Are you coaching her or is she like, don't talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, we discovered that me giving her my version of the cliff notes wasn't such a great idea. Right. Or me like sitting down and going, hey, say it this way. Right. Not so helpful, right. either to language or to the marriage. Yes. So <laughs> right. we uh, jettisoned that fairly quickly. But she developed a system. And I mean, the system was, hey, I take the kid. And then at the end of the day, any questions that she's kind of acquired, yeah. we'll walk through that together. But With a formal tutor? Yeah, she had, so we had three or four language helpers, ladies that would come and would work with her on however much time she wanted and they would kind of work her through that language. And so you kind of, I don't know how your guys' system was, but you start off with kind of words, simple, objective nouns. vocabulary bank. There you go. And then you're kind of going up to phrases, then you're going Mm -hmm. to sentences, then you're kind of working with paragraphs and then discourse. So those are kind of your progressions through language learning. Now, at Radius, where you train future missionaries, uh-huh. um, which we're going to come back to talk a whole bunch more about later, yep. uh, you have language. You essentially take them and teach them how to learn a language. Mm-hmm. Would you say the system that you use there in training those missionaries is essentially what you guys did in Papua New Guinea? It's a bit different. So what we teach at Radius is a much more cohesive system, and it's kind of soup to nuts the whole thing. Okay. We were kind of a little more ad hoc in our language acquisition. The soup to nuts approach, what we call it is BEC, Becoming Equipped to Communicate. You can buy the the manual online on Amazon. That system is just, if you follow the system, you will learn a language. Okay. Where ours was more, okay, we're going to try some of that, probably 60, 70% yeah. of that, but then there was 30% of, here's Brooks's really good ideas. Yeah. Let's try this. So yeah. maybe not as helpful. I'll tell you, one of the things that I try to impress upon people about language learning, and it, I don't know why people don't believe me, or I, I, don't, I don't know what the issue is, but to be in a culture. Amen. It makes it 10 times easier. Oh. Trying to learn Spanish with Duolingo on your phone and you're never talking. <laughs> oh, to I know. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the most exceptionally gifted among us will be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. But man, to be going to the mercado every day, you know, to, yeah. to just live life there, it makes it so much easier. Well, people will learn it through Duolingo. They'll learn it through Lingual Links. They'll learn it through us, but they won't have the accent and right. they'll be missing the culture component. Yes. That's the huge side yes. is if you have language divorced of culture, you have a sterile language that yeah. doesn't know the nuts and bolts, doesn't know the slang. Right. That's a brutal yeah. type of language to yeah. bring the gospel through. And you're also going to have these weird grammatical hiccups that at the end of the day aren't the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But you you probably notice this in English when someone uh, is grammatically deficient in some pretty significant areas, you can understand them, but man, it's grading. Yeah. It's grading. Right? Yeah. And so you want if you're going to be communicating the gospel, listen, the Lord can use and does use all kinds of, you know, broken language, but <coughs> you want to excel in that so that you can communicate in such a way that people are happy to listen to you. Oh, right? totally. And this is the Achilles heel. I mean, this is what Americans typically don't realize is that most Americans are always known as Americans because they walk with a limp verbally. Right. They always speak with an accent. They yeah. never got so immersed in their people, living among them. And this is, again, one of the advantages at Radius, where if you're living with the people that you're learning the language with, Mm -hmm. you're getting that slang and you're getting that perfect, if you're paying attention. That's right. You have to care. Exactly. If you live on a a combine with 15 other missionaries Uh and your life is set up on the mission field so that you never really have to interact with Mm -hmm. locals, first of all, we have a bigger problem than language (laughs) learning. True, true. But second of all, uh, it is very possible, just like, 
I, I met a guy the other day, Chinese. He's been living in Decatur for 40 years, mm. barely speaks English. Uh, you think, how is that possible? Well, yeah. he's stayed in his little bubble, there right? Missionaries can do that too. Yeah. Maybe you should just go home if you're going to do that. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me that Adoniram Judson was dealing with this way back, like 70 years mm. ago. People were coming to the field and missionaries have this natural sense. They're still human beings. Right. And so they like to clump together. That's they right. like to stay in safe places and the safe places where we can easily all talk and we have a trust in each other. But to move outside of the compound, that's a rare thing, but it's so much more healthy for the gospel and especially for their language ability in the gospel. Yeah. And I understand uh, different missionaries will be in different positions mm -hmm. where there'll be less of a need to do that. You know, the guy who's out doing uh, street evangelism versus let's say someone who's there to help with children and schooling mm -hmm. for a, a yeah. big project. That's different. But even then, your goal should always be to strive to get out there, get in with the people, learn the culture, learn the language. True, true. Okay, so you were there with what used to be called New Tribes. Now it's yep. called Ethnos 360. Yep. Okay, so mission leadership comes up, and then what? They hand us a list of seven people groups, language groups, that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. Papua New Guinea has the most languages and cultures of any country on the face of the earth. Just because of its geography, yeah. like its geography is so kind of dissected yeah. by rivers, really sketchy mountains. Yeah. And then the infighting between the people groups for generations kind uh, of split them into smaller and smaller and kind of isolated pockets. And so mm. when missionaries originally in the 1950s, some of them in the 1940s landed there, and as the gospel started to hit, other language groups would see that and go, we want that. Because they would see they came with medicine, mm. their lives got better. And then the ones that the people group we ended up they watched one particular church plant and all of a sudden this talk hit and it changed the village radically. Hmm. And they said, we don't know what that is, but we want that. We want the little white pills that'll save our babies from dying, but we also hmm. want whatever's happening there. They're not asking for Jesus, but they're asking for the ramifications yeah. of what they see. And so we looked at the lists. We were going to go to one particular place in God and his providence, moved actually on the day that we were going to fly in. And uh, the airfield we were going to land at was underwater. It had been mm. raining. It rained about six inches. And so we ended up going to this people group called the Yembi Yembi. Okay. So we end up among them and we start learning their language. And how long does it take? I know that when we talk about fluency, yeah. sometimes we can it can be a little ridiculous. But to get to the point where you felt competent to communicate with them about important things, how long did it take you guys? So this was something that Ethnos did really well was they would send in a what they call him is a language and culture consultant. And he would give you an evaluation. He'd oh. basically have you tell stories or he'd have you do certain tasks. And when you reached level four, you were free to start translating, free to start teaching. But yeah. until then, you were kind of, you're on the bubble, so we're not going to let you do anything. Okay. So it took me just under two years to get to level four, passed. Yeah. I mean, the cool part was we we told the Yembis when we moved in, number one, we're going to learn your language. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. And number three, we're going to take this book and we're going to translate that book into your language. And then number four, we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. Wow. And so when we're doing the first one, you got Yembi Yembis that are outside yelling in the, the house as we're getting our test results. What did he say? What step are you on? Because <laughs> they're ready. Oh man, they're yeah. like, hey, you said you were going to do four things. You haven't yeah. even finished one yet. Like, tell us when you're wow. getting through this. And so- yeah. And they knew that literacy, like learning how to read the paper, was going to come right after this. And so 
They're and they pretty, wanted that. Oh, man. And I mean, every time we described it as this is like four steps on a ladder. Like we're yeah. going up the four steps and I'm on step number two. But when you're like, hey, we're about to hit step number four, they were pretty jazzed up. So, wow. yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was pretty exciting, like the day we passed. Now, I'm guessing you could speak the trade language with some of the villagers if you needed to. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of them, but there was a, a group yeah. that could speak the trade yeah. language. But they were kind of, I mean, this was not their mother tongue. They right. were uncomfortable right. in it. Yeah, I remember being in the jungle and my Spanish, if I'm being brutally honest with myself, and I excelled uh, compared to many of the other missionaries, mm. let's say 80% fluency, Yeah, not my mother tongue. They speak Spanish, 80% fluency, not their mother tongue. Communicating could be yeah. kind of brutal. It was, oh. you know, yeah, better than trying to sometimes get by with the tribal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, I mean, if you have a people group that this is their second language and they're not putting the amount of effort into it that you're putting into right. it, they're just right. trying to get by, sell right. their crops, survive in town, get back. Home. Right. And so that, that was our people group. And so to get up to speed in their language to yeah. where we could tell complex stories, we could answer questions off okay. the cuff. That's a whole nother level of yeah. fluency. So, okay, so you get you get step four done. Yeah. I'm assuming big celebration. Oh, man. Like right? We had uh, a couple of days of fun. I mean, just within our team to get through, and now we can step into literacy. We start dissecting this language to actually develop an alphabet for the first time in their history. Wow. And then to start, like I was three days later, I'm into translation. Like I'm diving into Genesis just wow. because— if we're going to teach these people the gospel, we didn't want it to be our word against their ancestors' word. Mm. We wanted to have some objective truth to where they could read this and see, he's not making stuff up. We can read this at night on our own. But there, there's a long process before you get there. Okay, so so walk us through that process. So we started off, uh, we took about a month, and we broke down the language and got all the right characters. Like there were some characters, they have a glottal in our language. Okay. It's where you stop your vocal cords for half a second, but they could hear it if you didn't use, or if you didn't stop your vocal cords. It just sounded like too, like a running or a long vowel to us. Can now, you give me an example? So like uh, <clears throat> you would say, her canoe is long. So And you hear that so Yeah. So and then you're stopping your so do, yeah. but if you if you speed that up so do and the and so it's like her canoe is really long, that that middle glottal you've got to write that you've got to have a symbol for that. So wow. that's not in English. So you had to you like had a to, punctuation mark, pretty much. Okay. But it's it's a symbol for us. It's a vowel, so we put it right okay. in the middle of a lot of words, and sometimes it comes at the end. But anyway, so we developed the alphabet. Okay. Started putting through literacy classes. I'm cranking on translation as fast as I can go. And we start giving them a date. Hey, the number four thing where we teach you the meaning of this book, that's coming up in five moons. And every year, every month we go by, we're starting to tell them, hey, th this talk is coming. It's coming really soon. Now mm -hmm. it's only down to four moons. Now it's down to three moons. And we had these countdown calendars all around the village that we would Because oh. you're trying to get people excited for the coming of the main thing that you were there to do is to yeah. preach the gospel. So big countdown, the day's coming. You've been teaching them the alphabet yeah. at this point. Uh, what is the first session like? Yeah, teaching them the alphabet, put them through to where they could read and write. Yeah. We've got introductory passages, uh, the first five chapters of the book of Genesis translated ready to go. Wow. Uh, we tell them, okay, we're going to start this talk. And this talk is going to be about where people come from. This yeah. was one of their big questions. 
Where did people come from? Right. Where did the different races come from? And where they go when they die. Mm. And we're going to tell you where the origin of all things, where the plants come from, how come the moon goes in a cycle. We see that mm. all of these things. Now, they have their own story of that? Oh, please. Yeah, that? they okay. have their own cosmology. Why are they so open to hearing your perspective on it if they have what they've already received? Because they were thinking, okay, these guys came and they're obviously, and again, this is where your language study dictates kind of the urgency of your message. These guys obviously have something to say. Mm. And we told them, hey, where we come from, there is this talk about where these things come from. And we know the source of all these things. Yeah. We know who made all of these things. Okay. So you're making a truth claim in their society where this is a brand new thought, that there's a different cosmology, a different origin story, a different way to look at the world. It, it was kind of groundbreaking in that they thought everything was kind of the same no matter what. And this new idea was going to be something that <clears throat> they'd never that was going to make war on that to some degree. Wow. So the first day, you t the whole village is there? About 90% of the village turns out. I mean, everybody that was within walking distance was there. So you got about 1,000 people that are coming in. Wow. We, and we had, so we thought if we did the literacy class, we wouldn't call it a church building. We call it the teaching house. Okay. And so this is where literacy has gone on for three months. And then now the talk is coming. So you got literacy class in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you've got this talk, and they don't have, I mean, the Yembies, uh, we'll talk about this on Sunday, but the Yembies are not like you and I. If the Yembies like what you're saying, they'll yell at any time, anywhere, keep talking, this talk is good mm. to my bet. Like, they'll just yell it out. Yeah. If they don't like what you're saying, they'll also, yell, hey, shut your mouth, my ears are hurting. Like, the, you're getting instant <laughs> feedback. Yeah. So you got a thousand people with a lot of opinions, and we didn't start in Genesis 1. We started with, where did this talk come from? Okay. Did this talk come from Papua New Guinea? Did it come from America? And so we had to deal with a map. And so we had to go, if a bird flew over, this was day one. Yeah. If a bird flew over our village and he looked down, he would see, here's the airstrip. Here's the village. Here's my house. Here's Malachi's house. Here's all these landmarks. And that's, that's day one. Day two, if a bird flew over and is really high, he would look down and he would see Papua New Guinea. He'd see Australia right above that. And then he'd see over here and he'd see kind of, these countries, and this is where I come from. And then there's this little talk, this little country over here called Israel. This is where this talk comes from. Just so you're rooting this in time and space. This isn't, we're not making up fanciful right, stories here. Right, so right. that was, and then we start getting into who wrote this talk down? How can we have it on paper? And you give an education on prophets. Yeah. Then the prophets write these things down. And so we have a written record of what the God of the universe, and we're going to talk about him soon, yeah. what he has said. And so that's how we started. That was the first five days. So the book of Genesis begins with God himself. Yeah. I'm imagining that their conception of God is uh, probably some similarities, but also very different. How is it like trying to explain the biblical understanding of God to these tribal people? We're always comparing and contrasting. Here's right. what your ancestors said. Here's right. the spirits that you know. Because they had their story of like the crocodile coming up and giving it three tries. And the first try, he ends up with sticks and he ends up with trees. And the second try, he comes out of the river and he vomits up something else. And that's that's the pigs and the castors. And the third try, he gets man. Mm. Well, here's God and he makes him on the first try and he makes mm. him right. Yeah, And then like the part, I mean, the Yembe's world revolves around getting food. And yeah. so we had this canoe that we flipped over and we had all of these different foods from the Yembe world. 
And we flew in some from Australia that they'd never seen before, like apples and oranges. And so we diced them all up and look at all of these things. Does God eat food? No. Why did he make such incredible variety, all these different kinds of foods? Because he loves you and he loves me. And the Yembe start falling in love with this God based off of the things that he make are always good. Mm. And he cares about human beings. And he's so different from their gods because their gods are fickle. They come and they go. They do good things and then mm-hmm. they do things to torment. They're kind of like Greek gods. Like yeah, if you're, right. And so- They're human. Right. And they're looking at these two gods and the way that they structure themselves, the way that they speak to their, their creations. And it's just- it's so different. They start, and it was a prerequisite for what's coming in Genesis chapter three. Because right. if you don't build God's character, if they don't know, he always makes things good. He's always right. He cares about his creation. He doesn't do things randomly. He has a plan behind everything. When you get to Genesis chapter three, it's going to look capricious. It's going to yeah. look like he's vindictive. He right. gets angry really fast. That's the kind of God. No, 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 no. This is all the track record right. you have through Genesis 1 and yeah. 2. God gives an entire garden for you to enjoy with one tree that he says, and also for your good, yeah. don't go near it. Yeah. Not a world full of trees that you can't touch. Exactly. With, yeah. Okay, that's good. It's all perspective. And so for them to know and love this God because he's so different than their gods, that yeah. contrast of yeah. teaching is so important. So important. Yeah. In our church, we always say contrast creates clarity, mm. you know? Uh, so how much of the, you suck, stop talking, <laughs> did you get during these first few days of teaching? Well, I mean, my language is pretty good at this point. It's just, you've only got, you had sitting and listening, like they'd never done anything institutional like that in their life. Yeah. So you've got a window that is very small at the beginning and yeah. you're building muscles. You're building muscles between their ears right. to where they can sit and they can hear right. for longer. So the review time at the beginning and the end was gold because right. it's interactive. But as we still do that with our people. <laughs> it's yeah. by the end, they could listen for about an hour and a half. Wow. How but, long were they at the beginning? Oh, please. Five like minutes. 35 okay. minutes okay. max. Yeah. And I mean, you've got seven minutes of review. You've got another 10 minutes, like new material. Right. Yeah. You've got about 15 minutes. Then people are like, I'm tired. I'm hungry. This is not good talk. Shut your mouth. Like it's nice. just, it's coming back pretty. But as you get into new stuff and they're latching on, you don't hear the good comments. You hear silence, people paying attention. That's the part where you knew you got them. Mm. I have so many more questions. We got to keep this thing going. I can ask you a million questions about this. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's say, uh, how long did these last, the first iteration? So we did three and a half months to get from Genesis 1-1 to the death, burial, and resurrection. Wow. Okay. So at the end of three months, all thousand or so people that were coming? Mm, We started losing some around the law. The law was very controversial. And then we started gaining them back when Jesus pops on the scene. So Jesus pops on the scene because we'd been building up to this one. Because Genesis 3, Genesis 3 was so powerful for our guys. Okay. Because here's Adam and Eve, and we had a fig tree right outside the teaching house. Mm. Our ancestor, we ripped a branch off of it, and we hung it from the little lectern that I kind of taught off of. And the branches go down, and the leaves turn kind of yellow, then they turn black. And the promise of God that when our ancestors broke out from God, that would trickle down to us today. But Mm. someday, here's the promise of Genesis chapter 3, the good part, there's going to be one coming who has the power to put the branch back in the tree, Mm. to make things right between God and man. 
And so everything you're teaching from the entry into the promised land, from the Passover, from the bronze serpent, from the Abraham and Isaac and him offering him up, those are all pointing towards the coming of the one, the whole Old Testament. So when we tell them, hey, we've got about five more days of teaching, and then the one is coming on the scene. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so people who are drifting. And I'm guessing you constantly did that, right? Oh, Ten please. more days, yeah. eight more days. We're setting this up. This whole talk revolves around him. And then John the Baptist in John chapter 1 sees Jesus walking alongside the River Jordan, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First time that we didn't, we didn't do his origin story. We didn't do the Luke chapter two, any of that. This is the first time. And the Yembe stand up. You got like seven guys standing up in the back. Wait, 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 wait. Is this the one? Like Mm. they're stopping the teaching. And Mm. it was one of the privileges of my life to say, yeah, he's the one. He's the reason that we left our homes. He's Mm. the whole reason we are, we're here. It was a, it was a day of days. Mm. Praise God. Um, Try not to cry, brother. I'm even just thinking about so many of our brothers and sisters who have grown up in church their whole life. They don't Mm. know how to read the Bible like that. Yeah. It's not just some academic discipline to see Jesus in all of scripture. You know, Mm. it's not just one off hermeneutics class about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. The power of the Old Testament to point to the coming of the Messiah is just, I mean, it was like, right in front of us. And by God's grace, I mean, this wasn't something novel or new to us. Yeah, Other people had come alongside us and said, man, make this the right. overarching trajectory. Yeah. And so when you finally got to Jesus, yeah, the day you're like, here's the day. It's like, you know, when you do the, the calendar countdown for Christmas with your kids, right? Yeah. What was their reaction? Oh, I mean, like I said, you had seven guys standing yeah. up. And so then people started yelling from the back and they said, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We don't want to care. We don't care about him. <laughs> and John would have been like, amen. <laughs> right. But I mean, we told them, okay, this yeah. talk is like a house. You got to build it with the posts and the floor, then the walls and the ceiling. Yeah. And John is part of the walls. Right, we right, got to right. know about John yeah. the Baptist. And so forget, I mean, they're just, and these are unsaved people. So their insults are fairly strong. And so (laughs) stop, who cares about this guy? So that was the reaction. I mean, that was what we were hoping for, but then you can start getting into his story, how he came and some of the prophecies that we had gone through in the book of Isaiah. Yeah. This is the guy. Look, here's all the things lining up. So you're constantly touching back. Yeah. Yeah. You're not touching back on the redemptive analogies yet, but just that he's the one. He's got the credential credentials. Yeah. Remember when I told you yeah. this was coming? Yeah. Here you is. don't touch the bronze serpent. You don't touch the yeah. Passover lamb. You don't touch any of that stuff, but you, there's going to be one coming and this yeah. is, he'll be born in this city. Oh, he's born in the city and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah. so what is, once you get to Christ and you begin to explain the gospel, what is their response? What challenges are there? I mean, the idea that God came and then he rose from the dead. Yeah. How do they receive that? Well, we built up like this narrative of Jesus in his running conflicts with the Pharisees and the people who would turn their back on. And we would, so the Yambis are obviously very visual learners. So mm-hmm. some, about every other time we would teach, we would teach and then we would act things out, mm. teach and act things out. And so we had this running skit that started in Noah and the ark and just how what God closes, no man opens. Mm-hmm. And what God opens, no man's going to close. And mm-hmm. that story running through of people coming to God's country, God's place, heaven, as we would know. And 
I should get in because I'm a good Yembi, because I've come to all the teaching, because I've done all of these mm. things. And kind of contrasting that with the Pharisees and their attitude of why they thought they were good people. Mm. And finally getting to the death, burial, and resurrection and someone with their Adam part is what we called it. And their book of sins hanging around their neck and saying, I, I have these two things that block me from coming in, but your son has paid for these things. And God the Father reaching over, pulling those things to the side and inviting him into his country. Mm. That was the skit that we did. It was, uh, I mean, people were, it was, we knew it was powerful because it was quiet. Nobody mm. was excited. Nobody was yelling. Nobody was doing anything. And then we started doing interviews. We did interviews for almost two weeks of people who said, I, I get the talk. And so we did another teaching session going back, looking at all the redemptive analogies, how Jesus saves through his death, through his blood, he saves us. Blood's a big thing in that country as mm -hmm. well and in that society. And we did almost three weeks of interviews, and then we started diving into the book of Acts. Mm. Now, uh, I have, sorry, again, so many questions. Uh, let me write this down so I don't forget the interview <coughs> part. Um, but what is, what is the significance of the Adam parts hanging? Adam part being our sin nature. Mm -hmm. So we were born with the Adam parts. Right. But sorry, why hanging around the neck? Is that something? It was the only way we could get it tied to the individual. Like it was, if it's okay. hanging around their neck. So the Yembies would wear these necklaces that would signify their position there in life. Is. There and it so is. Yeah. That kind of signified, hey, this your is how God is a sees sinner. Exactly. Mm. You're, you're born with these things. And these interviews, are these like membership interviews? They're like salvation, almost membership interviews, yeah. but just, hey, tell me, the first question, tell me what you understood. Yeah. What, what do you understand okay. from what we're, what we're teaching? Yeah. And they're walking through, and then you're helping them put some of the older ones especially, put the pieces together, but mostly you're just wanting to hear them. And they, they would get excited at certain spots. But, I mean, the cool part was there was parts where we would do skits and parts where we would teach where we're pretty sure certain guys got saved because they could look ahead and see this is the guy. I'm not sure how, but this is the guy. He's yeah. the guy who's going to make things right between God and man for us. Okay, so take me from the time of teaching to first official day as a church. How do you get there? Oh, so we start teaching in the book of Acts. We don't have a church yet. We have believers. We got about 40 to 50 that are growing rapidly because wow. they're starting to tell their family members. Yes. We're doing interviews with family members. Baptism for us. So the book of Acts, your big three, when you're in those types of societies, you're teaching the Holy Spirit, you're mm -hmm. teaching baptism and communion. Those okay. are your monsters in the book of Acts that you okay. got to get. The narrative is going to teach itself, but those three things. And so baptism to us was turning your back on the ancestor paths and embracing the path of the bridge man. That's what they called Christ, was the one who yeah. took us from Satan's side to God's side. Yeah. And so that turning your back on the ancestor paths, that's a big deal, still a big deal to yeah. this day. So when we had seven people <coughs> that we felt like they, they know the gospel, they're very clear, and they're ready for baptism, we taught on baptism for about three weeks, and then we went down to the river, and the entire village, nearly 1,500 people turn out by this time. They've got sister villages. They're bringing people over, and they give an explanation for what they're doing and why they're turning their back on the ancestors. People are yelling. They're mm. angry. They're angry. Okay. Oh, yeah. please. That's what I was going to ask. Is there yeah. any persecution taking place? Oh, please. At the beginning, when they start doing this, baptisms for us where we went from really to the unbelievers. Interesting stories. A lot of people excited right. about this, right. too 
oh my goodness, they're starting to put down the ancestors. Right. Like they're they're yeah. going. And so there was only, there was five guys. I mean, we got 40 to 50 believers, but only seven, because they realized the ramifications of this. Yeah. Seven wanted to get baptized. Mm. One lady comes out, her husband isn't saved. Her husband breaks through the wall of believers holding him, pops her in the face. She lost two teeth. At the baptism? At the baptism, oh, as she's brother. coming out of the water. Most of them had their gardens cut down. Like it was, it was heavy, but they, how they stood strong, how they stayed true. And then the next Sunday, we start gathering together as a church. The sister who was assaulted, did she show up? She showed up. Oh. And in three years or so, her husband ends up getting saved. No. But I mean, she carried around the mark of her baptism oh. for the rest of her life. And those seven, and they'll still call them this, the, the brave seven. So it's really, speak. yeah, because they were the first. Like this yeah. was, I mean, they're going down. The yeah. first lady, not the one who got her teeth knocked out, but the other lady, as we're getting rid, the ripples are coming off of her. She's shaking. She's so nervous because yeah. this is huge. And you got a thousand people oh, on the bank. Yeah. Some of them jeering, some of them yelling. Yeah. You're going to pay the price for this. Yeah. But I tell you what, I mean, there's a reason why the early church had so much persecution. Right. Because you have nobody on the fence. You're either all in mm -hmm. or you're all out. It's right. too painful to ride the middle. Yeah. And what a sweet spot to be in because you didn't oh. have to guess, okay, if they're coming on Sunday, are they, are they understand? They're all in they're if they're here. In. And that, that was really sweet. Wow. I'm going to start telling that story when I have people who are, they say, oh, I can't read my testimony before I get baptized. I'm too nervous. I'll be like, sit down. Let me tell you a story <laughs> about a tribe in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Um, did you ever experience, you and your family, any threats of violence or any anything like that? Yeah, I think it was the second baptism. I flew... So we were in there by ourselves. Um, at this point, our coworkers, for whatever reason, were on furlough. Um, and we flew Nina and Bo, my son, out because it was just getting too hot. Like there were two paths to go up to our house. And the Yembies were like, don't take this path tonight. There's guys waiting for you on the path. Go this path. Mm. And so it's just stuff like that. But there were seasons. There was a, our teaching house almost got burned down. Guys uh. running with torches to cook it. But Again, God in his grace, as the persecution was stronger, the church just kept growing. And it just, uh, these guys are getting harder and harder in their convictions. Yeah, They're coming, we're doing extra classes, we're doing Wednesday teaching. I mean, it was just like you had an audience that couldn't get enough of it. So yeah. you're, you're staying up late trying to translate to stay ahead of everything, but then yeah. also trying to teach the new material that's just been translated. And they're like, there's more books. There's more books. Right. There's more coming. This is a sweet season. Wow. Um, were the Yimbi, Yimbi Yimbi, right? Were uh -huh. they particularly violent people? Yes. So, so these were not empty threats. No, no, no. Yeah. The years before we came in, I think it was as best we can calculate, 40s or 50s, they cannibalized most of the tribes around there. And then about the 1970s, the Australian government came in and just beat the snot out of them and said, mm. stop cannibalizing people around you or else we're coming in and we're going to finish you all off. Yeah. So that's what effectively killed cannibalism. But the Yembis were the most dominant tribe because they basically beat up everybody around them. So they were, I mean, a prized, a, a young man who swung his fists or who, who got in a fight fast, who had a quick temper, that's the kind of son you wanted. Like that's the mm. Yembi Yembi version of like, hey, if you want to be a man, 
this is the guy who swings first, asks questions later. Like he, he just yeah. rumbles at the drop of a hat. So yeah. you had that mentality that was like the masculine version of yeah. the MBMB male. And you couple that with guys that are incensed with, we're losing our history. Our yeah. ancestor ways are going away. Yeah. And it just made for a, a cocktail that was a little bit volatile. A little. Yeah. So sitting here in this interview mm -hmm. and with your disposition even, uh, you're talking about it pretty dispassionately in the moment, mm -hmm. you know, for you, for Nina. I mean, was it pretty terrifying? So I developed at that time, like I would get up around two, three o'clock in the morning and I would walk around our house just to make sure it wasn't on fire. It wasn't, and we had believers that would check on us. And that, that habit has stayed with me to this day. Cause we, you had to go through about three years of that. Yeah. And there was, I mean, you're trying to shield your son from this as well. Cause you're right. building up the people in his mind. Look at what you get to do. Like you're part yeah. of seeing the gospel come to these people. Yeah. Well, we're praying for, and we had Nina had these little strips of paper of people that were the biggest antagonizers to the mm. church. And he's praying for these guys and we're trying to build this up. And at the same time, hey, this might be a little too far. It might be time to get him on the plane and get him out of here for yeah. this season. And so Acts was tough. Romans was pretty tough. Um, but then right around- Is that how you compartmentalize your memories, little, whatever book you were in yeah, at the time? When we were teaching through certain books, there were certain stages. When we yeah. broke into Ephesians, so we went Acts, Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. When we got to Ephesians, we started to get close to being the majority in the tribe. Wow. And so we're, we're getting bigger. And then we got some of the hotheads, some of the young guys who were pretty violently against us start coming to the teaching. And so now the other side is starting to kind of quiet down a little bit and things started to turn. Bad things too. Like you, you get guys that are just coming because that is the popular thing to do now. Mm. And so everything shifts. You end up with great new grace, but you also end up with new problems too. Right. So no such thing as an unmitigated blessing in a fallen world. Oh, true, true. Yeah. So you're, you have a church, you uh -huh. start with the first seven, mm -hmm. the number of perfection. <laughs> uh, and then, I mean, so I'm a nine marks guy. Mm -hmm. You're a nine marks. I mean, you believe in the principles cause you think they're biblical. It, that stuff doesn't work in the jungle, right? <laughs> No, it absolutely does. And he, here's the thing that most people don't realize and probably the part of our story that gets downplayed the most. We present the gospel and then we had churches back in the U.S. saying, hey, when are you coming home or when are you leaving? We had just started. Like to see them brought to a mature church, mm -hmm. that was the goal. So we right. stayed for eight more years from the time that the gospel came to the time that we left, that was an eight-year span just to wow. teach through the rest of the New Testament and then to disciple these elders and deacons to maturity, have them co-teach with me. Like, you're, you're bringing guys up for the first time ever. Yeah. And to get them to the point to where they're confident enough to do this, then I'm starting to take a backseat more and more. I'm sitting in the crowd. Mm. I'm one of the guys. Yeah. And to then leave for three months at a time and then come back in for three months. Yeah. And then leave for one month. And then you're just taking time to see them to maturity. That's the big process. Because again, if you don't see a mature church planted, 
your children and my grandchildren will be back in there in a generation because the gospel will not take root. The only way it takes root is if there's a strong New Testament church. Praise God, brother. So ecclesiology matters on the mission field. Oh, absolutely. Probably matters even more on the mission field. Yeah, because you're you're breaking into new territory. Like the Yemis would describe it as, you guys are the first ones cutting the path through the jungle. So if the guys leading the way are not solid, this is going to just go to junk in a minute if you're not making it really strong before you leave. Okay. So let's walk through just some of those marks because I think, you know, for example, the idea expositional preaching or even preaching itself is like a Western concept, right? Um, I try to help guys understand the, there's a principle there Mm -hmm. and that principle will look different in different contexts, Mm -hmm. but the principle is given to us by God in Mm -hmm. a culture, not at all Western. And it should be able to apply it to any culture, although it looks differently. So let's walk through some of these. Let's start with expositional preaching, which is not line by line. Mm -hmm. It's the point of the text is the main thing I'm trying to get across to you. You did that in the jungle. Absolutely. Point of the text is the point of the message, and it's got to apply to their context. Like yeah. you, you teach this passage. Our guys, like we, <laughs> I go, I went back in last month, was back there in Yembe So came back to the U.S. in 2016, but have gone back every year to check on the church, kind of see Paul doing that. Seems like a good idea. Um, <laughs> so went back and they just, hey, give me, give me what you guys have taught. And yeah. they just start listing book by book, by book, by book. Occasionally, and you've got some believers, a a group of believers that were in a car accident out here. Some of them died. Hey, we're going to take a a Sunday and we're going to teach about heaven and where believers go. And just, there are occasions where it's wise and prudent to teach on something topical, but the bread, the regular, ordinary teaching, that's going to be book by book. And it's going to be as we go through this each time and they're discipling new guys in the process. That's the beauty of expositional preaching is now you've got a record of these things for a first time culture of how the first guys did it. And so the next guys coming through can learn from that. Wow. Okay. Um, Here's one that almost certainly doesn't apply to a missionary context. Uh, Church membership and discipline. Church membership, very much so. Um, you got to know who the elders are responsible for. They can't mm. be responsible for everybody. Like we have the teaching house, and then there's the notorious. We call them the guys who stand and listen. And they stand on the outside of the teaching house. Their hands are on the outside wall, and they listen to the teaching. Because and- life in the jungle is boring. Thanks. <laughs> Right? Well, it's, it's the most do. interesting thing going yeah, on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. But they have zero <laughs> desire to participate in the church, and they have zero desire to be a mm-hmm. member. They have zero desire to get baptized. Those guys aren't your responsibility. Your right. responsibility are the people that are sitting there that are baptized, that are members of mm-hmm. the church. And so- Even member accountability. Who yeah. are the members accountable for? Yeah. yeah. And who do you look at? I mean- who do the members go to? We have four clans in YMBMB. So you got the okay. ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and the toucans. And That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so Nina, my wife, who's in the background <laughs> over there, she's part of the Eagle Clan. Hey. <laughs> it's, but we're I, gonna be in the Barracuda Clan, you and I. I'll explain later. Okay. But trust me, it'll be good. Yeah, okay. I'm sure that'll be exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just church membership has so many more ramifications than people give it credit for. Not just the who do the elders elder, but who are our people? And mm-hmm. we knew we had something pretty stinking awesome when we started to hear people refer to the clan that supersedes the Eagle Clan, the Black Cockatoos, oh. the Toucans. Like there is a clan. Because yes. we taught on that, but it takes a while for identities to sure. shift. So right. across clans, I have a bigger allegiance to that guy 
That's church membership. That's that's Amen. the clan that supersedes all other clans. What, what what was the name of that clan? Well, we would just call it the Crossers, the Crossing Clan. It probably so, sounds better than the original name. It actually sounds pretty cool in English too. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll start calling ourselves, yeah. the no, Crossers. It's uh, hey, American Christians, please take note of this. If you love this country more than you love Jesus, really, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, discipline. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't discipline people in the jungle, right? You're going to scare people away. You're going to be perceived as mean. You work so hard to get them into the church. Right. You're going to turn around and put them right out of the church? No. I mean, this is where people have this false idea. So this, there's this popular idea in missions that, okay, you're from a guilt, innocence culture. You take Paul as being the, the guy over there, there's honor, shame cultures, and you honor somebody and you bring them back into a position of honor. Yes, there's aspects of that in the scripture, but this idea that, hey, Paul didn't speak in judicial terms. Yeah, he did. It, it was pretty clear. Justification. And, yeah, yeah. Honor shame starts to subtly kneecap penal substitutionary atonement if mm. you're not careful. Mm. And in honor shame cultures, hey, you know what, brother? This is not the mark of a crosser. These marks that you're showing, they're not marks of a crosser, and we need to be really careful. And so the elders are going to meet with you, but you got to be careful about how you're walking here because you're showing the marks of another clan. That's not mm. the cross. It's mm. not this clan. It's another clan. And to walk that through with guys, we had some strong moments. But again, the Yembies who had been there from the beginning, who had yeah. gone through the fire, yeah, yeah, this is who we are. Let's right. not dilute what was so awesome at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the way you're talking about it, this is the way I'll. This is the way I'm going to talk to a member of my church. I'm not going to say, use the clan language, but I'll say, mm-hmm. you know, you're not walking like Jesus taught us to walk. You're walking like you belong to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not thinking about, we want you out. We we actually want you in. Mm-hmm. Each one of the clans in Yembe had like different trees or like different symbols around that they would beautify their house. And this is how you know, oh, this is a black cockatoo house or this is a mm-hmm. ostrich clan house. You have the marks of another clan. And brother, we want you in the clan. So let's yank those flowers out and let's put in the flowers of the clan. And just because we care about you, we, wow. we want you in. We don't want you out. Their yeah. Church discipline isn't designed to chuck you. It's designed to bring you back. Wow. Um, every culture, every culture has to deal with syncretism, right? Mm. Christians in a particular culture. Uh, America has to deal with it. Uh, the Jews in the days of the judges had to deal with it. W- what is what was the biggest? I, I remember being uh, preaching a sermon at a village uh, in, in the jungles of Peru and asking, "How many of you guys go see the brujo, hmm. right, the witch?" And like eighty percent of them yeah. raised their hand. Right? Hmm. What did that look like for you guys battling syncretism in that context? Absolutely. I mean, this is all over in Africa. We teach on this at Radius all the time. You've got people who go to the church on Sunday and on Monday. If their kid gets sick, they go to the witch doctor. Like, what is this? Well, it's the mixing of the two. And so, our guys, same deal. I mean, it's these are centuries held beliefs. And so, you're not going to be naive enough that this is going to uproot everything. You have to teach very specifically, hey, when right. when Jesus says, man, he is the author of life and death, when God the Father says he controls, he's the only one who holds the keys to life and death. So 
when your child, when your wife is getting sick, when you can't have children, we don't look for the white chicken and burn its feathers slowly mm. so the smell goes up into the roof. Mm. That's the sign. And this is a phrase we came up with. You're mixing sago. Sago to them was like the bread. But old sago got really hard and it was hard to eat. New sago was fun to eat. You mix the two together and it's worse mm. than anything. You're mixing your sagos. That's what's happening here. You're mixing the true talk and the fake talk. And those two talks do not go together. And that syncretism is probably the biggest thing that any church established for the first time is going to have to battle yeah. because you're fighting, again, generations of belief. Back to some of the marks of a healthy church, church mm -hmm. leadership. <clears throat> Earlier, I was amening heartily in my heart when you said that first generation has to be established well or else... Uh, your sons and daughters are going to be coming back and sort of replanting and mm -hmm. revitalizing. Uh, there was a strip uh, along the river in Peru where it was considered reached. Mm. It was, it didn't seem particularly reached when we went in there and started doing some work. Oh. And uh, what we realized was that a lot of missionaries did a good job coming mm -hmm. through, counting the cost, preaching and teaching, getting people saved. Mm -hmm. And then they would build a building and then they would more or less, this is a bit of a caricature, but only a bit, look around for like the guy who's least likely to get drunk and beat his wife, right? And in that context, I'm being serious, right? Yeah. You're laughing because you understand. And then and then they would make him the pastor, yeah, right? Um, and that was really bad. What was it like for you guys to train up qualified elders and deacons in that context? So we went through, like I said, Romans to Ephesians to 1 Corinthians, and then we started dipping into the pastorals. And we did, <clears throat> we invited anybody who wanted to, to walk through with us as we would go through 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And we did these on night classes where we would sit with the Yambis in two and a half hours. What does it mean to lead the church, to lead God's bride? And we, we went through months and months and months of that. And then we put it to the church. Hey, we think there are some guys that are qualified to start stepping into this. And we had guys in mind and we, we were incredibly encouraged that when the church, we said, come talk to us afterwards. If you think there's somebody in the church that is qualified based off of what we see in first Timothy three, Titus one to be a leader in the church after they had gone through nearly a year and a half of teaching yeah, and then also teaching the kids. So this is part of our training track. Okay. Now you have to teach the Sunday school because if Sunday Amen. school kids don't want to listen to you, right. the adults don't want to listen Amen, to you either. Brother. And if you don't have the humility to teach mm. the kids, you have zero business teaching the adults. Absolutely. That's now part of the formal track. But the first time through, that was kind of like an add-on. But our list came back fairly consistent with what the, the church members said to us. Hey, we think these five guys. And so working with those five guys for another about three and a half years just to see them. Okay, now they're going to stand up. And so we usually teach about three points on Sunday. That was the beginning. Sure. Three points. I'm going to teach the first two. This is what I'm going to teach. You're going to teach the last one. The guy gets up for the first time ever, yeah. knees knocking, just right. shaking <laughs> right. like crazy, dying. And I mean, everybody, every eye is glued. This is the most interesting thing that's happened since the gospel came. And having them do that and just getting repetitions of teaching mm -hmm. one point, and then they're getting two points. Mm -hmm. And if they don't feel good, 
go to your garden, teach to the banana trees. They won't make fun of you. Because again, there are the repetition of it to where you, you're not like, oh my goodness, this point is coming up. No, no, no. You've gone over this enough. You're familiar with yeah. this. It's virtually memorized. Yeah. If they get those types of repetitions, they, they end up being a better teacher. They got to be a good reader. And again, this is where literacy is so important. <clears throat> Same deal. If you stutter when you're reading, go practice to the banana trees. They That's won't right. make fun of you. Yeah. And just getting those repetitions in. We didn't do everything right. Man, I think of the first five guys that we named as elders, three of them did quite well. Two of them didn't do very well. That's not too bad, brother. Well. <laughs> uh, that's not too bad. Oh, but it, it rips your heart oh, out. Of I mean, it's like yeah. there's... Yeah, a yeah. huge chunk of my heart every time I, I, one of those guys just, yeah, they spun off into oblivion in yeah. some ways. But by God's grace, the guys that they were discipling, not the two, but the three, they're coming up behind and we're yeah. getting into our second generation of leadership now. But those, those are really days. I mean, it's like landing on the moon. Like yeah. nobody, there's no textbook for this. Okay, so that, that brings me to discipling. Yeah. Making disciples and being discipled yourself. Mm -hmm. What were some of the unique challenges and blessings of biblical discipleship in that context? Yeah, so you're living in a highly <clears throat> agrarian society. They're hunter-gatherers, so mm -hmm. you got to be with them, and they got to be with you. And so every place that I go, I started into that thing that we talked about, culture and language yeah. consulting. So I'm going to new places. They're going with me. They're getting on airplanes for the first time. Like this is a new thing, but I'm also hunting a ton, and I'm not a I'm not a big hunter. I I like it to some degree, but I more like the time with the guys. Yeah. That's that's the whole payoff for why I'm going. But you're you're discipling guys, and then this thing that I don't know if it's a nine marks thing or I don't know, but the sermon review time was yeah. just gold wrapped in gold for us to walk through. Okay, yes. we sung these songs. Then we did kind of like an announcement thing. And then we had this really long preamble. Let's let's cut that preamble out. Let's get to yeah. kind of the text because notice how long we've been going and people are falling asleep. Like you're just, sermon review was so practical mm. and real for us. And it wasn't like these incisive, you and I have both sat in sermon reviews where mm. they're dissecting things. It's just, hey, you know what? Let's just maybe cut it to three points and not cut it to 17. Like yeah. that, that's not helpful. Like yeah. you're, they're really basic things they've seen modeled but they they decided oh, well let's give this a shot yeah eh, let's not <laughs> that <laughs> right. kind of yeah. thing that's really good brother one of the things that kill i shouldn't say it that way i i try to commend sermon and service review hmm. to brothers constantly the percentage of guys who actually do it for various reasons is very low i don't understand why the payoff is tremendous the cost is really nothing <laughs> Uh, it's so useful. It works in the jungle. It works in the city. It works in the suburbs. It works in the country. You're training people to better edify the congregation, whether they're praying or preaching or leading the service or singing. You're training them how to be more edifying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're training them, and then you're also training them how to interact with each other, like oh, how to treat each other and how to love each other. Not flattery, right. but also, man, you, you don't need to rip this guy. You know how bad it was when you, and I mean, it's just yeah. everybody, yeah, I've been in that chair yeah. before. And so just the amount of grace that guys give mm -hmm. each other when you do a sermon review, it just increases, and it makes them better teachers. So the first time, did you go to a weekender? I did, so yeah. the first time you're at a weekender, you're like, Psh. 
We did that in the jungle. Well, I mean, it gave me new ideas to where it's like, oh my goodness. I mean, we'd done sermon review, but yeah. to do service review, okay. that was a new concept to right. me. So th- everything under the microscope, that was something on one of my annual trips. I'm like, yeah. hey, let's take the whole Sunday and let's nice. put the whole worship service under this. And was that helpful? Oh, man. I mean, coming back and just things are tightened up, songs are better, things are done in a way to where it edifies the church more. Yeah. Amen, brother. So we could talk a lot more about that, mm-hmm. but the day about uh, everything, we talk a lot more about everything, but the day comes where you feel, your family feels, maybe the the, the missions organization feels like you can go. Mm-hmm. The, the healthy church, understanding that in a fallen world, it's never going to be as healthy as it can be or as it should be. Uh, the church is healthy enough for you to go. Uh, what does that process look like? Do you guys sit down and, and have this conversation? Is it kind of an epiphany moment? Do you look up one day in service and go, I think we can go? Well, how does that happen? We started. Wait, by the way, it's kind of a bummer that next time we're going to have Nina on with <laughs> another microphone because you know how it is when you're around certain spouses when mm-hmm. they tell a story. The, to have the second spouse be like, that's not how it happened. It happened like this. And then you guys argue your way to clarity. We need some more of that. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm half a mind to like ask her over. Hey, remember this? Did I get that? Don't be afraid to. Yeah. And Nina, don't be afraid to speak <laughs> up if he's over here saying something dumb. All right. So how do you come to that conclusion? Yeah, we had done an event. So again, we had good guys who had walked this path ahead of us, who had planted churches, who knew somewhat what this should look like. And so those guys are sending us emails. A couple of them flew in sitting down with our elders minus the missionary team, just man, sit with the church elders, see yeah. where they're at, yeah. meet with a few of the church members. And they're like, guys, we think this is there. The translation was really a big barometer for us too. We wanted yeah. to get that done. And How so, much of it did you have done when you left? Oh, we had about, I mean, by the time we started looking at leaving, we were about 75%. So we're, we're pretty close. Of the New Testament? New Testament's done. We're starting to chew oh, on the Old Testament. So wow. Old Testament still has stuff to be done. But right. again, the rise of the national language mm. has kind of made the Old Testament translation right. not the front burner issue that it was at one time. Yeah. And so... I want to come back to that. New Testament's done. They're reading the New Testament. Um Church elders are doing good. They're not doing great, but every time we leave, we seem to see good guys step up. Yeah, and that—that's really the thing. Historically, if you've ever looked at missions and where they planted churches where there is no gospel, when the missionary leaves, it almost always takes a dip, but it comes back right. and it comes back stronger eventually yeah. than when he was there. Yeah. And so. You're leaving just like, it's like sending your kid to college. Like, oh my goodness, I, I hope everything that we poured into him, he is going to put that into action. And that's why we go back every year to just check on that church. And we go back for about a week and a half. And the first few times is like, oh my goodness, and sitting down, massive pep talks and how things are going. And last month, I mean, they held their first conference ever in the history of that village and invited 17 other churches. They had to plant gardens a year and a half in advance to have enough food. And all these 17 churches come in and they were hospitable. They were kind. They had a schedule laid out. They had a track for bring your wives. We're going to have some ladies teach just the ladies. Uh. And to go back and like, they said, we want you to give one talk, but that's all we want you to do. The rest of them, it's going to be done by guys who are church yeah. elders. And yeah. Amen. And 
to to get to that point, no doubt they will have issues. They're not a perfect church. Sure. But to see from where we left to where it was last month is yeah. just I mean, it's the grace of God, grace upon grace. How long have you been gone? We've been gone six years now. Mm. So they're 15 years old, 15-year-old church. Wow. Uh, I always tell myself when I'm feeling bad about how our church is going, look at the Corinthians. Exactly. Planted by Paul, you know? Yeah. Even one of the first letters we have in the uh, church fathers, uh, you know, after the closing of the New Testament, he's writing about the Corinthians. Mm. They're still struggling, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, no no such thing as a perfect church. Mm. The, the, the Acts 2 paradigm, mm-hmm. the, where we sort of all look back and bemoan, why can't we be like the church in Acts 2? It's like, well, right behind Acts 2 was Corinth, you, oh, know, Corinth, know. you know what yeah. I mean? So... You have these highs and these, I mean, that's the thing I think in church planting where no church exists. It's just these mountaintop experiences in these crashing valleys. Mm. You pick five guys and two of them just turn their back on the gospel almost. Like it's, how did we get this so wrong? We tried our best. We're dealing with human beings. This is part of the deal. Sin, satanic stuff. Yeah. All right, brother. So you leave the mission field. Come back to the United States. Yep. To go back and be a CFO again? No. Uh, so we were debating either pastoring a church in San Diego, church that her and I both love dearly, or uh, staying with the mission and just doing mission leadership stuff, like yeah. helping other people. And then we'd heard about this <coughs> school, heard about it because my dad helped found it called okay. Radius. And is your dad back in the States at this time? He is. He'd okay. been back in a while. And one of the kind of things with <clears throat> us going back to New Guinea is, so I grew up obviously going to the boarding school. Yeah. So dad's in the tribe, don't see a ton of him. Then when I graduate from high school, had to leave the country, go back to the United States. He stays in New Guinea. He comes back to America. I go to New Guinea. And so we just, we haven't seen each other for long periods of time since I was three years old. So anyways, come back to the U.S. and radius to duplicate ourselves, to take all these lessons that we've learned and to pour them into the next generation of guys going to the field, it just seemed like the most useful way to use the rest of our lives. Yeah. So uh, your dad founds Radius. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? So dad and a few (coughs) pastors. Can you tell me when your dad's name? I don't think everybody knows it. Oh, Brad. So Brad Buser. um, You Google him, you'll see a lot of Paul Washer-esque sermons on YouTube. Um, So dad and some Southern California pastors found radius because they start to see the attrition rate for missionaries is so high. They head overseas. They don't last longer than two years. What is going on? They come from good churches. They know their Bibles. What are they missing? Well, they're missing some of the practical things. And then there's also these character traits that show up on the field that people didn't realize they had before they went to the field. And so radius is founded and it's founded just across the border from San Diego and Mexico so that you can kind of replicate field realities mm. in that environment. Yeah. And how long have you been there now? So I've been there six years. So okay. the combination of the finance backgrounds and then the church planning background, the board had asked me, would you come in? Would you help lead this thing? Yeah. So come so back. So what's your role? So I'm the president. Okay. <clears throat> so we've got the English-speaking campuses, which you're familiar mm-hmm. with, down in Mexico. And then you've got the Mandarin campuses, just started three years ago. Same program, all in Mandarin. Oh. 
And then you've got, Lord willing, our brother Harshit Singh over in India, mm. partnering with him to do the Hindi campuses maybe in two or three years. Wow. And what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis, being the president of, of that organization? I mean, I'm imagining it's not super glamorous. It's not terribly glamorous. So initially, like we were... The school's only been around for 11 years. Okay. So this is the 11th class going through right now. Um, we just we weren't known by anybody. Nobody had heard about us. So I'm coming back, and I've got these pretty strong convictions about how to plant a church. And I know that there's a tribe out there that shares these convictions. And then there's some other guys that I want to get. Sorry, to be clear, tribe, you mean people in the states that you <laughs> yeah, want to partner sorry. with. Right, yeah. People that hold the same theological <coughs> convictions that, yeah. I, that I'm holding to. And I mean... I didn't start with those theological convictions when I went to the field. It was through actually planting the MBME mm. church, and I'm looking for who talks about the church in this way. Yeah. And I run across these guys that believe this, and this guy, Mark Dever, who's pretty clear on the church. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty excited about the way that John Piper speaks about the sovereignty of God and a big God theology. Yeah. And then I read these certain books that are made by these guys that are mostly Puritans and this, these guys, the Banner of Truth guys mm-hmm. that I'm just, I'm starting to fall in love with the way that the Banner of Truth selects and does old stuff and yeah. they're unashamed about it. Yeah. And so I'm like, we got to get these tribes down here. Now, one of the founders, his name is Chad Vegas. <clears throat> he introduced me to the Banner of Truth guys. He knew them way better. They start coming to campus. Mark comes to campus handful of other guys. And so the program has started to grow over the last six or seven years quite significantly. But yeah. we we have a lot of influences that we really like a lot. Yeah. And they they shape the students, they shape their ecclesiology, they shape the way that they're going to do missions overseas, their yeah. methodology. You know this. Your methodology is downstream from your theology. That's right. And your theology downstream from that is your ecclesiology. And all of this is just kind of this. But if you can win them to the big concepts at the beginning, you can win them to good ecclesiology. That's going to trickle down to everything that they do for the rest of their lives. So that was a big job the first few years. And now Banner is just a sweet partner of ours. Nine Marks is a sweet partner. Ligonier helps a ton. Grace to You sends So all these groups send us free books. So the students just get a ton of good literature. Oh, praise God. So the first few years was you sort of setting a vision, creating the culture, getting everything aligned theologically, philosophy of ministry-wise. What does your job look like these days now that most of that's sort of cemented? Yeah. I mean, a lot of... There was so much good that was done prior to my arrival. I don't want to make it seem like I I came in and fixed everything. But um, today, it's more just managing. And then we're of the conviction, I say we being the entire Radius board, that it won't just be English speakers that see the Great Commission advance. Amen. It's going to take every one of these major languages that have yeah. good churches among them. And so we could blow out the the English-speaking program down in Mexico. We could take, I think last year we turned away like 20 or 30 students just because we had more applications than we had space. We could major on that, or we could go, hey, you know what? Let's keep building up the Mandarin program. Let's look at the Hindi program, and let's look at something in Africa. And so that's really where a lot of my energy goes Yeah, is – 
How do we build these programs? You got to find guys that are going to match ecclesiologically, but they also have the convictions of learning a language to full fluency and that church planting is the goal. It's not this ancillary thing. No, no, no. This is what we're starting off. Because if you don't start off in missions with that's the goal, you'll never get there. Because there's so many hurdles. It's like, what's the point? We've already got believers. Why would we go this extra 8, 10, 15 years. Like that, that's ridiculous for most missionaries. So that hunting for those partners yeah. is a big job. It wasn't ridiculous in the book of Acts. A bunch of people get saved, you gather them into a church. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how the oversimplification of things in the American church, and the unfortunate thing is the church tends to be weaned on speed and efficiency these mm. days. Things happen fast. We baptize people really quickly. We call people Christians, and we're kind of sure they are, and there's just this speed. What it does is downstream from the American church are the American missionaries that go overseas, and they export this type of mentality overseas. Right. And so you've got a lot going on overseas where counting numbers is the big thing. Yeah. And seeing the gospel go as rapid as possible, you hear of movements mm-hmm. and quick and fast. And that stuff, it has a veneer of authenticity, but it does not last. And it's brutal to watch when it comes apart. Yeah. So I don't want to get you into any hot water. I know you you have to, in some sense, be diplomatic as a guy who runs a missionary training school. Uh, Russell Berger and myself mm-hmm. did a, I don't remember how many part series critiquing what you're talking about, mm-hmm. church planning movements, uh, four fields. I know they're not exactly the same, but they, no. they're kind of all flowing from the same groundwaters. Mm-hmm. And brother, I cannot, I mean, we did maybe like a 16-part series critiquing critical theory. We have received more criticism about our critique of CPM, DMM stuff than anything else. Yeah. Why do you think that is? The reason, and I say this because at Radius, we will invite someone of that persuasion, that church planting method. So they like to call us the guys that go slow. Oh, you're the old school guys. You're the guys that like to go. They, one of the guys would say, oh, what you're talking about is elephant churches. I'm talking about rabbit churches Mm. that reproduce in like weekends and have tons of babies. And elephants only produce one baby and maybe every four or five years. You're talking about that. I'm talking about this. We'll invite down those guys to, hey, you can present to the entire class. We're going to give you two hours but you got to open yourself up to another two hours of Q&A from the students. And getting to see those guys, we started to realize this is not a held, these aren't held convictions. These are identities for them. And Mm. if you start poking at that, you're no longer poking at ideas that can be objectively debated. Mm -hmm. You're poking in an identity. And that has really, really tight things to their heart. Like this is now threatening because if agencies look at, and to me, the metric that should be measured above all else, okay, let's say we planted a thousand churches in Sri Lanka last year. Let's do a measurement in another five years and see how many of them are still there. That's the metric that counts above all other metrics. Five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. But if you threaten that narrative, then all of a sudden a whole establishment starts getting a little bit wobbly. And so that whole thing of... These are more identities. These are more 
this is how they see themselves. That that was a revelation to me because I thought, hey, you know what? You open your Bible, I'll open my Bible. Let's talk about these things. Let's talk about these. Yeah. Things. Not so. This yeah. is be- this becomes emotional, and the currency of the day when you start talking about those things is not scripture. It's stories. Mm. Stories trump scripture mm. because it's working. I've seen thousands. I've seen this. I've seen that. That becomes the metric of what is true and what is. Well, these are just all debatable. For every nasty gram we would receive, this isn't true. You don't know what you're talking about. God is moving. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure God is moving. That's for sure. But uh, we would get another message from a missionary mm-hmm. on the field saying, guys, you have no idea. It's mm. worse than you even understand. Yeah. We're being trained in this stuff. It's really bad. What would you say... Because I'm imagining that there are going to be people on the mission field or aspiring to be missionaries uh, watching this. What would you say to someone if they're on a team where they're being trained in like CPM, DMM kind of stuff, rapid multiplication missions philosophy? How would you encourage them to navigate that? Should they just leave their team? Should they try to bring it up with their team leaders? Yeah, I think... The first thing, first and foremost, what we discovered down at Radius is if you try and change the agencies, you're just, you're fighting a fool's errand. Like you're, you're getting into something that that's not going to be possible. But what we found is the most interested parties in all of this are the local churches because the local churches genuinely. The one that send the missionaries. Exactly. So that's who you talk to. Those are the people you change the local churches, the agencies will change on a dime mm. because most of them are pretty pragmatic. Hey, if this is where things are going, yeah. then this is where we're going too. Yeah. And so we've found we don't deal with the agencies. There's some of them that we've found are really good. There's sure. some good agencies and there's pockets within agencies that we're like, that's kind of sketchy, but there's a good team right. within there. Yeah. We really, I mean, there's some great guys. I would encourage people, man, talk to your home church first and foremost and explain to them your concerns. Right. And then based on their, if they understand these things and you're, you're clear on that, then I would make a joint decision based off that. But I, I, I worry a lot about missionaries going to the field without being good, faithful members of a local church. Amen, I worry brother. the same deal. Local church not being involved in what missionaries are doing once they're on the field, established missionaries. So same deal, same principle kind of. Yeah. So um, when you're considering someone to be, first of all, Radius is not a sending organization. Not at all. Can you explain why and what you actually do? do? Yeah. When they founded Radius, they looked at and said, we don't need another agency. There's enough agencies out there. Maybe we can recoup a handful of them, but there's still about four or five that we have a lot of confidence in. The the training aspect is what's going to make the difference. So you dive into some critical aspects of training, and then we have the agencies come down and they recruit our students to Mm. join their agency. But they recruit or they come in and in conjunction with your local church, make the decision of where you want to go and who you want to go with. Because that's a different paradigm. But they get to compare kind of apples to apples rather than, hey, I got a great sales pitch from Pioneers or the IMB or Reaching and Teaching is talking talking about the, you know what, work, know all of them, and then talk with your local church about the options, and then make a decision. It just, it seems to be a better setup than what is a one-off thing usually. I'm guessing you have to be pretty ecumenical, um, not not to a fault, obviously. You're probably 
you know, I'm imagining you're within the bounds of a, like a stringent orthodoxy, but I know that you have some Presbyterian guys come down there. Let's just stick with that, okay? You're trying to send out missionaries to the mission field. You're training them. Mm-hmm. You got Reformed Baptists over here. You got Presbyterians over here. Maybe even a Methodist makes his way in, huh? Who knows? But, uh, I mean, as you're training people, this is what the church is. Mm-hmm. And this is how you should build what we think a healthy church is. I'm imagining there's going to be some dissonance there between people coming from certain backgrounds. How do you navigate that? Yeah. So we're going to get in. I mean, as you well know, we're, we have a ecclesiology that we're going to teach. We want them to be in line with their local church. Now, some of them, most of the Presbyterians come from really good churches. Right. It's usually the Baptists that I'm more concerned about. Like there's yeah. some Reformed Baptist churches that are phenomenal that are uh-huh. coming to us. There's also some others that are Bible churches or just, I don't know, they're, they're non-denoms. They're, yeah. they're that kind of a church. And they tend to be fairly squishy. And the members that come have got to find a box and go, okay, this is what a church is and isn't. And so by the end of the program, we have a definition of a church. It's on the website. They have to memorize that definition. They got to be able to give a clear defense of it. There are going to be differences in the way that Presbyterians and Baptists, especially Reformed Baptists Mm -hmm. and Presbyterians, that ecclesiology plays out. But it is within the bounds that we would feel comfortable with. And we want them if that's what their church holds to, we want them to hold to that as well. And so, so let's get practical. Yeah, uh, myself and Mike McKinley were down there last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we teaching on ecclesiology. We're both ooh capital B Baptists because we think the capital B Bible teaches that. Uh, and we taught. I mean, I think ninety percent of what we taught anybody in that room could have said yes and amen yeah. to. But then we also taught some particularly. Baptist distinctives about the nature of the local church. Did you catch any flack for that from any of the students or have a lot of questions and follow-ups? No, because I mean, the students, everybody that comes to us is pretty clear on who we are. Like this isn't, I mean, if there are any students that we feel like have questions, we're going to tell them, come down and spend a few nights on campus. Like that's just part of the deal. So there's no We've never had flack on that particular, like you guys, that was the first year it's heading into more teaching like that. But we have, I mean, we have brothers that come from now the church planning component. That's going to be from a particular strata. Right. But we have brothers from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different denominations. And like I said, I love the banner guys. They seem to juggle the Reformed Baptist Presbyterian thing fairly well. Yeah, they do. Um, and nine marks does pretty well mm. as, as, as well for how incredibly Baptist they are. You yeah. Know? Um, I think, I mean, you and I have both been discipled in the Catholicity, amen. especially recently of yeah. hey, there are things that we can broadly share here. And, but yeah. there are brothers that are closer to us and man, our, our Presbyterian brothers are pretty close. I think, um, one of the things, I don't remember who I heard this from, but it's easier to be Catholic in that way when everyone that you're trying to be Catholic with is firmly rooted in the center of where they are, right? So a squishy Baptist and a squishy Presbyterian, it's going to be really hard for us to yeah. work together. Yeah. But if you're a rootin' tootin', John Calvin quotin', pipe smoking, whiskey drinking Presbyterian, and I'm a rootin' tootin' Reformed Baptist, it's just going to be so much easier for us to work together. Well, we all quote Spurgeon and we all quote <laughs> Calvin. And we, right. we don't, I mean, I have yet to hear a Presbyterian talk badly about Spurgeon. Like right. it's just, we have guys that we go, okay, there are differences, but on the big things and yeah. even on the secondary things, we're pretty secondary baptism, but no, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so that that creates a camaraderie. I would much rather take guys that are convictional rather than yeah. just 
well, you tell me what, and I'll go there. Like, right. That's, that's, that's not going to work. No. Yeah. And especially on the mission field, that is not going to fly. Yeah. Uh, earlier, you said people who come to us, they know who we are. Yeah. Who who are you? What what are those distinctives? Because you do have yeah. to draw lines. Yeah, yeah. Theologically, or just the whole program? Uh, theologically, philosophy of ministry wise. So, like, if somebody comes to join our church, mm -hmm. we tell them, "Here's what we believe as Christians. Here are some of our distinctives. Mm -hmm. We're complementarian, basically cessationist, congregationalist, yeah. so on and so forth." W what is the Similar. Um, it, a lot of that vibe comes through the staff. Like we'll have like the Orthodox convictions on the website, but we are going to be Greek or Eastern. <laughs> but all oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so complementarian, very clearly, uh, mostly cessationist with the seatbelt on. Yeah. Um, continuationist with the seatbelt on or no, cessationist? No, no. Cessation. Well, I guess you could say we're not continuationists. Okay. We would be cessationists with the seatbelt in a friendly way. Hey, does God do miracles? Does God do things outside? Okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. But we're going to be very careful with that. We're Baptistic. Um, we just, and we put a high supremacy on church planting. So that's yeah. going to lead us downstream from that to language to full fluency. It's going to lead us to literacy. We like orality as a starting point. We yeah. don't like it as a finishing point. Okay. We think that's a bad place to leave a local church. And so right. downstream from our ecclesiological convictions are going to come all this support of other things that we're going to press pretty heavily into. Re Reform soteriology, how important is that for you guys? Yeah. Doctrines it, of grace. We would have a mixture of guys on staff depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we would I, I couldn't say as an organization wide we would hold to sure. that exactly because there's going to be a couple guys that are going to nuance that differently. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, well, I just have to say, I, I don't understand how, I mean, functionally I understand, mm -hmm. but I don't understand how someone can go to the mission field without, even if whether you can get on board with limited atonement or not, right? Yeah. But like a big God theology, like, mm believing in the sovereignty of God over all things, especially salvation, how you can be a missionary without believing that. I don't know how you have the strength to do it. Yeah. I think getting through that and then also getting through all of the trials, the suffering that yes. you got to go through. If yes. you don't have a big God theology, I think it just, it, it brings you down to where you're just struggling. You're always on the edge of yes. how do we get through this? But yeah. If you have that, it undergirds you in ways that nothing else can. Yeah. And I'm not trying to take anything, and I know you aren't either, brother, trying to take anything away from any faithful, mm -hmm. non-reformed missionaries. Yeah. You know, there have been many, hundreds, mm -hmm. thousands. Yep. But uh, it is a little bit like handicapping yourself. It's in the Bible for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I take great heart in looking at the history of missions and John Payton and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram oh, Judson and Amy Carmichael yeah. and all of these brothers and sisters that had that big God theology yeah. and it was front and center. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, this is kind of, it's going to sneak its way out in conversations. Yeah. This is what they staked their life on. That's right. It was the ballast that kept the ship from tipping. Amen. Uh, going back to languages for a second. Yeah. We're in a tricky time. Uh, technology, the internet, the industrial revolution. It has made our world smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, even linguistically. Mm -hmm. So uh, a little story. <clears throat> I'm in a, a village. There's a campamento, you know, a gathering. I'm out there to preach. Other brothers are preaching. We're singing. And <clears throat> we're in a Shawi village. Shawi, there are people group in the upper Amazon river basin in Peru. <clears throat> and uh, they're singing a worship song. Mm. 
guys playing the guitar, leading, and they're singing in the shawi language. I, at this point, I can't, I can't sing with them, but I'm, I'm vibing, right? I'm yeah. checking it out, right? And he stops, and he's upset, and he begins to berate the youth who are present hmm. because they're not singing, and they're not singing because they don't know the language. Yeah. Because Spanish, yeah. if you want a job, even in the jungle, yep. when the when the when the lancha comes, the mm -hmm. barge comes, yep. you need to be able to speak with them in Spanish. Yep. Right. Uh so they are forgetting their language. Uh, and so they're not able to sing the shall we worship songs. Mm. The elder who was leading that song was very upset about it. When I'm having conversations with missionaries, people just think trying to think well about missions and languages, I find that there are kind of two camps. One is the heart language camp, and the other is the, yeah, all that's kind of disappearing, right? They're going to, all the language groups in the world are kind of turning into these larger uh, trade languages. So yeah. uh, where do you land on that? How should we think about that? I think, I mean, I don't want to be the, oh, there's a middle road, but there, you will. Yeah, I'll <laughs> maybe take a bit of that. There is a huge language loss issue going on in missions, and that's a good thing for the most part because okay. there are stronger churches in these what we would call gateway languages yeah. or languages of wider communication. So okay. Hindi, Urdu, Bahasa, Spanish, yeah. those are those are major languages that are going to kind of suck up some of these smaller groups. Yeah. In the same sense, though, there, there is like the Yembies probably in 10 years from now, we could have given them the gospel and done everything that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. We could have done all of that in Mel Melanesian Pigeon. But for that period of time from 2007 till 2016, when the gospel came in and the church was planted, they had to hear that in their language that right. they were most familiar with. And so right. What do they speak when they're fighting with their wife? What uh, do they speak when they're talking around the fire at night, when yeah. they're teaching their son something important? What do they speak in their language of emotion? That's what you want the gospel to come into. And so yeah. praise God when some of these guys can hear the gospel that clearly yeah. in what they would say is their mother tongue or the language that they would feel most comfortable, spiritual language, some people will say yeah. it. But there are, man, there's still about 3,000 of these languages out there today by the IMB's own statistics, just yeah. a hair over 3,000, that they don't have any gospel and most importantly, no church among them. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to go in there and somebody's got to learn those languages to That's full right. fluency if the gospel is going to be clear. If, yeah. if you want to just communicate stuff, if we're Coca-Cola reps or we're selling Microsoft, yeah. that's a different animal. But if... If we're gospel people, we're communicators by nature. And we're we, heart people. We're heart people. We yeah. want to get to what will they understand. We want to knock down as many barriers. I, I can't change this. Can't change my skin color. Can't change where I was born. Can't change how tall I am. But I can change the way I communicate if I put the effort and energy in. Hmm. in if in 50 years, mm -hmm. uh, Mandarin, Spanish, all these languages sort of uh, consume, let's say, the vast majority of these smaller languages. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's going to happen, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are talking like that. They're yeah. saying, you know, linguists are saying, hey, like, uh, heart language, yes and amen, but at the same time, where are we going to invest our resources if we're thinking long-term? Uh, would you be sad at the loss of many of these languages? No, I, I wouldn't be sad at all. I would be sad if we put... so. Again, you kind of got to look at 
missions and where missionaries are going and where money's going. Okay. And so to that group of 3,000 or so people that we all agree has no gospel witness, has no church, yeah. you got about 2% of the money in missions that go there and about right. 1% of the workers. Right. I would be sad if from now till 50 years from now, it stays at that number. Because you're talking about a lot of people that are going to hell yeah. that have never heard the gospel that maybe when they get to be good Spanish speakers or they get to be good Mandarin speakers, they can hear it clearly and then go back to their people. Yeah. My hope isn't that, oh, well, let's ramp that up to 90%. No, we're talking about a smaller group of people, but it should be higher than that. Yeah. If we all agree, hey, they have no gospel, no church. The church instinctively for nearly 2,000 years has said, we go where no foundation has been laid. Right. That's not everybody, right, yeah. but there should be some Pauline pioneer type missionaries heading in that direction. It should be more than 2%. I mean, that, that yeah. would be a, a reasonable thing to say, I think. Earlier, you were talking about your preference for unreached language groups mm -hmm. versus unreached people groups. Um, why do you hate Ralph Winters? <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful setup. <laughs> Tell us why you prefer one over the other. No, I, I think Ralph Winters did the missions community a great service by bringing that whole idea into the fore. Um, I don't think what I don't, I, I think there were some unintended consequences sure. from yeah. 1974 on, yeah. like when he kind of brought that up in the Luzon conference. Mm -hmm. But I think winner, like the limitations of unreached people groups, just to kind of summarize it. It has two big limitations. Number one is that they put this artificial metric into it where 2%, they establish 2% of the population. When 2% of the population is converted, they feel like it can evangelize itself. Okay. And that's a completely artificial metric. It has okay. no biblical basis whatsoever. And okay. so they go from an unreached people group to a reached people group at 2.1%. Well, who gets to determine whether they're converted and why is 2% such a big number? And then the big one that unreached people groups has suffered from to this day is that anything and any any sort of peculiarity will define you as a separate people group. So you've got the you've got uh, in one of the major listings will have North American hockey players as an unreached people group <laughs> because there's less than 2% of them are saved yeah. and there's no dedicated missionary force to them. You got rodeo clowns. You've got the oh, LGBTQ community of South Carolina listed on a major index yeah. as an unreached people group. Wow. It dies the death of a thousand cuts because everybody fits in some sort of unreached people group yeah. if they've not heard the gospel. Huh. And so it becomes this ever ballooning terminology yeah. and so much money is raised today on unreached people groups right. because it can mean anything. Man, we're gonna go to the MIT community of Boston mm. because less than 2% of them are saved. Completely true. They speak science. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't have a dedicated missionary force for them. But it starts to take away from what the original goal I believe Ralph Winters had was, hey, let's highlight where the gospel hasn't gone. Yeah. The I mean, you've gotten into this in your podcasts and just the homogenous, homogenous unit principle. Yeah. Okay, they need to have some unifying factor. And then all of a sudden, okay, we need missionaries to this particular cast of India and this particular cast of India. And it's just, it doesn't resemble a church any longer. We're not looking yeah. at and it I almost feels like a baptized version of identity politics, right? Yeah. We're going to break people down according to these identity markers intersectionally. Right. 
But there's an infinite number of intersections. Exactly. And it gets it gets ridiculous. After it a while. starts to get ridiculous and it just becomes something that, okay, nobody can measure this, nobody can define this. Okay. Where language all of a sudden, and we see language in scripture, Genesis chapter eleven, right. we see the Tower of Babel. Then you got Genesis chapter ten, which chronologically should be after Genesis okay. eleven. Okay. They're identified in Genesis chapter ten, the sons of Noah okay. by their languages and where they went and where mm. they established. Those languages are the defining markers. And then you start to see in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the sign that the king has come, everybody's speaking the glory of God in their own right, language. Right. And then whether you agree or not, whether I'm Revelation so. 7, 9, or Revelation okay. 5, 9 is allegorical or not, language, every tribe, people, nation, and language is yeah. in there. And so language is this defining metric that our God seems to have used. Is it the totality? No. no. Yeah. But it's something that we can go okay, if there's an entire language group here and they have no gospel and they have no church, that should be pretty high on our prioritization list. That That's where I think it's so much more helpful than unreached people groups. Mm. That's very useful, brother. I'm sure a lot of people are very upset with you and <laughs> I'm here for it. Um, what are, let's, let's start with this. What are you most encouraged by right now in the world of missions? And then let's do what are you most concerned with, frustrated by? Yeah, probably most encouraged by good churches that I know, not just English-speaking churches, but good churches around the world saying, this is what mission should be. This is how we're going to start doing this. And we're not going to stop at seeing proselytes. We're not going to stop at seeing people getting saved. We're, we're going to press into that. And from good churches, I mean, your best missionaries almost always come from your best churches. Right. They just, they come better grounded. We yeah. see this at Radius all the time. We yeah. have a little saying in our, you can take a three to about a five, but you can take a seven to about a nine. But if they come in at a seven, like they're mm. further along the scale, okay. we yeah. can take them so much further because they've got that good rooting in their church. If we got to build that rooting, we just can't take them as far. They've right. got things they got to learn ahead of time. I literally think you cannot do it. I don't think God designed for a radius to do that in someone. He yeah. designed the local church to do yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And yeah. we're we're starting to ratchet down more and more on, okay, if they don't come in with these certain things yeah. about them, if they don't come in with this background, yeah. we're having an easier time saying, let take two years. Yeah. And maybe f look at these churches yeah. or maybe look at this and try and help them on that side of the equation right. before they come to us. Because it's not a numbers game for you guys either. It's not glory chasing. Look how many missionaries we've trained. It's yeah. who are the people that we believe can be most fruitful and effective for the gospel. And yeah. you have to set parameters for that. Yeah. You know, according to your definition of fruitfulness. No, you have to. And the fruit will bear itself out over time. Yeah. Like you will, you can go fast and you can get big numbers, but I mean, you and I have seen the end of that. So yeah. most encouraged by the churches starting to step into missions and stepping into missions issues. Mm. Like that's a big thing. Because you- Going back to the changing of the- the philosophies of these missions agencies. Yeah, yeah. because they're, they're going to steer the whole mechanism. Because yeah. usually churches are really reticent to get involved in missions, especially when mission leaders are saying, this is how it's done. These are the experts. Oh, they're totally. the professionals. Who am I to weigh in on that? I'm he's a missiologist. A I'm a nobody. Right. Yeah. He's, he's buried children overseas. He's Ooh, learned multiple yeah. languages. He's translated the Bible. And now he's saying, this is how it's done man, I am stepping into really shaky ground. Yeah. But churches are taking back this idea that, hey, 
the God who moves here, the Holy Spirit that is resident here is the same Holy Spirit mm -hmm. over there. And the mm -hmm. church that I see, yes, the forms are going to look different, mm -hmm. but the the whole the elements, elements yeah. of this thing is are going to look the same. Yeah. They have to be the same, otherwise they're not biblical. Right. If they're not biblical, we should jettison them in Decatur, Alabama, just as much as we should jettison them in Delhi. Yeah. It's just that is starting to come to the fore, that this isn't as, as mystical as sometimes it's made out to be. Yeah. Praise God. And imagine, I mean, let's just take the IMB and the, they're big boys. They can take this. And I'm saying this, not you, but if 40,000 churches in the IMB get on the same page, that's probably not going to happen. But let's just say 20,000 churches in the IMB get on the same page and say, this is how we want to see missionaries trained up. Uh, that'll really mean something for what the IMB allows to happen on the mission field. The IMB, Frontiers, Pioneers, uh, all of it. Like the church is the mechanism. And it's still whether, I mean, because a lot of the agencies will say, we're church driven, we're church driven. Mm -hmm. This is what this means. If the church says, okay, these are the metrics for success now, the agencies will follow. Yeah. And praise God for that. That's the yeah. right way things should go. Yeah. That's good, brother. Okay. And what are you disconcerted by, concerned with, frustrated at? Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of blowback that is going to be in place for probably the next seven to eight years as a corrective to some of that missiology mm -hmm. comes in. Mm -hmm. um, man, I, I love the book, No Shortcut to Success by Matt Rhodes. I think yeah. that's a very helpful corrective to what's out there. The blowback to it is fairly strong. Yeah. And I think that that worries me. There, there needs to be a good conversation about missions ideas, these ideas, even from me, hey, yeah, we did a lot of stuff on the field. If guys are saying, hey, Brooks, you should have done this to her, I should be able to have a voice to listen to that. Yeah, I should be able yeah. to scrutinize with the same microscope I put other people's ideas right. under. I should be able to put that microscope on myself and my work as well. And so I'm hopeful those conversations will happen. They're happening in certain quarters, but maybe they'll happen more frequently and with less emotion. Yeah. I am the eternal pessimist. Hmm. <laughs> Something the spirit's working out in me. But even for me, brother, it's hard to deny the work of reformation that the Lord is doing in the way that churches are thinking about the church, hmm. especially in relation to missions. Uh, and so I'm greatly encouraged by the progress I see. I agree with you. There is blowback. I've felt some of that <laughs> blowback. It's not fun. But again, like I said, for every nasty gram, there is, you know, there are two notes of encouragement, mm. right? Um, and so the Lord is raising up people and institutions and seminaries and parachurch ministries all together. And it all seems like we're kind of moving in the same direction on this front. So yeah, yeah I'm 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 hopeful. I'm seeing certain seminaries, I and mean, we've got two seminaries now that will do a four-year MDiv, three years with them, fourth year at Radius. Okay. The, the, the double-edged sword with theological education is the longer they're in the pipeline, the less likely they go to the mission field. That's right. just the way it is. <laughs> right. But if they come in with the idea, I'm going to the mission field, and those seminaries tend to take their ecclesiology pretty stinking seriously. Nice. Like they're because they know, oh, they're going to get this at radius. Like let's, it doesn't say that we're reforming their ecclesiology, but they they tend to be more serious yeah. if they're thinking like, so I'm seeing more and more of that. There there are encouraging signs in the missions world for yeah. sure. Um, what advice would you give to a young or old or somewhere in between brother or sister who's seriously considering Christ's claim on their lives 
for the sake of missions. Let me just lay out some different options for you. And you can just kind of pick some as you will, right? Option number one, or we'll say uh, uh, Christian type number one, someone who has always thought that they were going to be a missionary and they've just been slowly walking that path. Uh, Maybe example number two would be someone who goes, it could never be me, Hmm. right? Uh, Option number three, someone who would like for it to be them, petrified they've read adoniram judson's uh you know biography and and rather than encouraging them it's 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 made them think oh i could, that could never be me yeah right i'm not good enough i'm not holy enough what would you say to various christians like that regarding going to the mission field so i think i'd prescribe the first two things for all three groups okay. number one read good books before you go while you're in hot college, you're a good reader, you're a bad reader, you're in between, develop those muscles. Reading is a set of muscles. It's okay. just like sitting, the MBMB sitting under teaching. They could only do it for 35 minutes, but eventually they got up to an hour and a half. Right. But if you read, it doesn't mean you're all, you're going to be a really fast reader, but I think if you read good books right. about missions, I think missionary biographies have a way of imparting steel into people's spine, Amen. of making people oh my goodness, look at what previous saints have been able to accomplish by the grace of God. Maybe God will use me in such a way. It has that ability to do that. So to the golden shore. Yeah, yeah, you knew what I was going to do. Okay, (laughs) to the golden shore. To the golden shore, number one missionary biography, hands down, uh, by Courtney Anderson. Number two, the autobiography of John Payton. Okay. uh, Beauty for Ashes by Ian Murray. Story of Amy Carmichael. Fantastic. It was so good that I led our men's retreat. (laughs) Through it, almost like, hey, you got to man up, dude. Amy uh, Carmichael's please. out here doing this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. She, uh, I, oh my god, A warrior for the word of God. Yeah. Fighting uh, liberalism on the mission field. Exactly. Oh. She's got this guy coming in from seminary who isn't convinced of inerrancy. <laughs> yes. And she doesn't chuck him, but she gently like, hey, yeah. we're not going down this path. Yeah. And she loses a lot based yes. off of that. Yes. And so, yeah. So um, good. Okay. Amy Carmichael, John G. Payton, uh, Judson. St. Andrews 7, I think yep. is really helpful. Yep. Uh, it's just a really good book to see how these guys, it, they didn't do, I mean, what they did on the field, debatable, but their formation and yeah. how uh, Chalmers pull, poured into them so much. Um, George Mueller's autobiography. George Mueller, helpful. Mm-hmm. Anything by Hudson, I mean, on Hudson on Taylor. Hudson Taylor, yeah. Hudson Taylor was kind of the benchmark for culture and language yeah. fluency. He changed the world of missions in that way. Piper's uh, sermon series. Oh, please. Uh, 21 Servants of Sovereign. Oh. I think it's up to 27 now. But. Okay. But you can even, if you're like, I'm not going to read that yeah. massive book, go online, listen. Yeah. But yeah, Piper's theological underpinning, like that's another yeah. class of book, right. wouldn't be biography, but I think Let the Nations Be Glad yes. is kind of like the, oh, this is why we do this. Yeah. It's not, here's a bunch of stories. It's here's where we see in the scriptures yes. why God's glory among the nations is so yes. primary to God, not to us, to yes. God. Yeah. And that that's a big thing, I think, in moving people's hearts. So Okay, so reading good books, we've given you six to start with. Yeah. Okay, number two. Uh, number two, I think you are a faithful member of a local church. Okay. If you're not a faithful member of a local church, don't go into missions, period. Amen. Like, that's just... Getting on an airplane isn't going to change anything. No. In fact, it will take every one of your eccentricities and your weaknesses and ramp them up times five. Yeah. And so if you don't have that undergirding, if you don't have that background, if you don't know what a local church is, then how in the world are you going to plant a local yeah. church overseas? And so... So Andrew Cagle sitting right behind me, yep. member of my local church, yeah. aspires to be a missionary, mm-hmm. has been a faithful member here for how long, Andrew? 
almost three years, exceptional hmm. in his faithfulness as a church member. Watching him grow in Christ has been one of the greatest privileges of my ministry. That's like pick number one for Radius. Absolutely. A guy like Andrew loves yeah. the word, good reader, mm -hmm. faithful member of a local church. You're like, yeah, we're choosing you. Put yeah. him at the top of the pile. Absolutely. Yeah. Just because he's the big thing for us, we'll read their application, but we want to know what their pastors say. Their references matter tremendously to yeah. us. And so we have a one to six scale if they're anywhere on the threes and the twos as far as the church goes yeah. and their membership and the, the pastor. I kind of know this guy, but he's kind of spotty at attendance. Brother, take another couple of years. Like we would so, rather you do yeah. that. Is that why you always tell me I'm number one because <laughs> on of the scale? Or did I mess it? Maybe six okay. is the highest. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. You um, never told me I'm a six. So. Yeah, um, All right. So read church. What else? Number three. What you take one or two, and I'm really specific about this for a reason. Take one or two short-term missions trips. Okay. Don't take more than that because people start getting addicted to short-term missions yeah, trips, they and they go, and it starts to feel like, oh, this is me doing missions. Right. No, it's not. It's like the only way that the nations are going to be reached is by long-term missions. Short-term missions right. has its place. Praise God for it when it helps right. out existing missionaries, when it challenges people, it opens their eyes. I mean, nothing has the power like a trip to a foreign country that's well-directed. Yeah. But take one or two of those. Don't take more than that. After that, yeah. you'll know. Take a mission trip to a, a team or an operation that's doing the kind of ministry you would like to do on the field. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Don't go to one of these things where it's basically just like slum tourism, you know. Well, it's slum tourism or it's just a big tourism. hype and yeah. we're going to do a week in Hawaii at the end. And yeah. it's like, this is just kids having a glorified Christian yeah. spring break. Like, that's all it is. I'm trying so hard not to go on a big, long rant. Right <laughs> now, dude, about oh, come on. I, I mean, mean, listen, you're going you're gonna to take 20 people down. It's probably going to cost 80 grand to go down and build a building. Mm-hmm. You could have, if you were working with a faithful team, sent 10 grand. They could have built three buildings yeah. in half the time, and it would not have been marketed as a vacation to the children in your church because yeah. that's how often how it is. Well, it's marketed as an international vacation, and yeah. unfortunately, it ends up having about that same effect. Right. Like guys come back and they got a stamp in their passport, they're a little red, and that's about it. I mean, yeah. they... And that's a brutal thing when the church invests that much time and energy. If it isn't thought out and if it isn't, isn't led well, it can be yeah. counterproductive to yeah. the cause of Christ. That's right. Um, I don't remember who said it, but the call to serve Christ is the call to come and die. Yeah. Right? And uh, Amy how Carmichael. much more so on... Huh? Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael. That's right. Christ bids a man come. He bids that he come and die. Yeah. And how much more on the mission field if you walk away from a mission trip going i think i'd like to go back there next year yeah you know that would be something fun to do during spring break yeah something something has gone wrong yeah, yeah. i think if you see it and you go this was fun we got to play a lot of interesting games yeah. if you see it and go what an incredible thing to be involved in right. i could see myself giving my life to this type of thing yeah. that's a great yeah. inspirational thing for later e even on. if i don't go yeah. oh this is what i'm gonna take my spare income this is what my prayers are going to go towards yeah. these are the kind of missionaries i'm going to support yeah, yeah exactly and i think especially if those missionaries are from their same church yeah. that tie is oh, so good so good Hey, is everyone a missionary? No. Are we all missionaries? No, we're definitely not. Are you sure? Because I've been told that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think, and this is me talking to your church in two days. There, yeah. there is a difference between those sent ones, and you know the whole background of where that mm -hmm. term comes from. 
Um, but I, I think that's kind of been some of the impetus behind why so few go to the nations. Because if we're all missionaries, man, I'd much rather do it in San Diego, California. Amen, brother. Than, Maybe Fiji? Exactly. Yeah. Like there's a lot of unreached people over there. The problem is there's going to be unreached people in every people group, in every language until yeah. Christ returns. Yep. But I think having a little more definition kind of helps us. And it doesn't, everybody's always, well, that takes missionaries and puts them on a pedestal. Well, only if you do that. You, you, you can still have missionaries that, hey, these are these are faithful church members before they went over there. That undercuts some of that mystique that people are so worried yeah. about. Yes. So this is a difficult balance. On the one hand, missionaries probably should be put, I mean, third John, honor men such as these, True. right? But not in such a way that they look like they're superhero Christians, mm -hmm. right? They deserve honor. Mm -hmm. Paul is even clear as he's talking about spiritual gifts in the church. Some gifts are more important and more helpful and more useful than other gifts. But what that shouldn't lead to is conflict within the body because there are greater and lesser gifts, recognizing that every gift in the body is working together for the health of the body and for the glory of God in that body. Um, but specifically what you said about the local church, even if they are being honored mm -hmm. for their, you know, Epaphroditus, you know, he, he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. We got to honor that, yeah. but we don't honor that. Like he is like, he, like there's something in him that's not in you. It's yeah. the same Holy spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Missionaries will too often, I, I think the whole pedestal thing comes from when they're hopping around church to church and they're not in their home church. Yes. When they're in their home church. That was Dave and Judy. We we were with them for the five years when they knew each other and they were wrestling through things and he became a deacon yeah. and all that kind of yeah. like you just you know Dave and Judy. Yeah. But as Dave and Judy parachute into XYZ church, they're oh my goodness, look at what Dave and Judy did. A good, helpful pop to that bubble is Dave and Judy spending most of yes. their time on home assignment yes. in their home church. And that would lead us to another conversation about how you raise funds. I don't think we have time for that today, but I'm I have a feeling that this is just going to be episode one of, of other recordings with Brooks Boozer and maybe next time with Nina Boozer. I always mess it up. I want to say Boozer, but it's Boozer. 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 Close enough. We've known each other Three for tries. long enough that yeah. I should really have this down by now. Um, hey, rapid fire questions. Yeah. We're almost done. Okay. Are you good? You hanging I'm in I'm great. All right. What is the weirdest thing you consumed, ate, <laughs> drank on the mission <laughs> Proverbial. So the Yembies, if they really like you, they give you grub worms. Grub worms yes. is like, hey, we so every time I go back, like I get plates of these. So Nina used to eat, she'd choke down one or two and then she'd <laughs> empty hers into mine. She's like, but Brooks really likes these. Yes. Bad for the marriage, better for her stomach. So. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, in Peru, I learned that one of the ways that you can avoid eating something offered to you is to say, yo no se comer eso. Like, I don't, I don't know how to eat this. And that was like what got you the pass. <laughs> and then somebody else would jump in and start Dude, showing you. I overused it. I, play, I, I didn't realize you can't play that <laughs> card too much. You know, you got to be <laughs> selective. So I'm just like, guys, I don't know how to eat anything, you know? <laughs> No, okay. So uh, yeah. what was the best thing that you ate there? Like, ooh, I can't wait to go back so I can eat that. Oh, man. Um, there's, I mean, you, Americans don't know what good fruit is. Like, they just have ooh, no idea. No, that's true. Like, good bananas, fresh good mangoes. papayas, fresh mangoes. Oh. Like, that's just, you get a coconut that comes off the tree. Mm. It's almost carbonated. Yeah. Like, it, it tastes so good. The right. electrolytes, everything yeah. in it. You're on a long four-hour hike. You get one of those suckers. Yeah. It's 
it's just it the closest life. you can get is Publix. And I have a conspiracy theory about this, but I don't want to talk about it on here. Later, we're going to do another tinfoil pot, tinfoil hat podcast, and nice. we're going to talk about the Publix conspiracy. Okay. Okay. So fresh fruit. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, I am reading. Uh, what's the one that we got at Michael Reeves? Um, the gospel one. people. No, uh, the Reformation one. The, the background of the Reformation. Uh. Uh, the na- uh, unquenchable flame, unquenchable flame, so unquenchable good. flame, and Ian Hamilton's new book, Baby, flash that up for me. Or what was the name? Of it? She's got it in my bag. The titles elude me, but he's really good on Christ's final words, Ooh, words okay. from the cross. Ian yeah. Hamilton, excellent. How good is unquenchable flame, dude? So far, it's phenomenal. Yeah. But I just finished a biography of Martin Luther like a month ago, yeah. and so it's tracking fairly close. Yeah. But there's certain things that Reeves. I mean, seriously, I who hasn't read "Delighting in the Trinity"? Right, like, yeah. you got to read that. That's like a staple to. of Christendom. Yeah. But I didn't realize he had these other books that guys were like, "Hey, yeah. you like let the nations be glad." Like, here's Reeves on that topic. Like, he's he's a lot better than I had even heard of. Yeah, that's good, brother. Um, <clears throat> favorite treat it could be candy it could be donut but like <laughs> dude i'm going to town on ben and jerry's peanut butter cups yeah probably mint chocolate chip ice cream like because okay. we were in the jungle and you didn't get ice cream for 13 right. years and so when i got back like i Did you blow up oh the first few months yeah. it was horrific and yeah. so the last first few months is probably generous first couple of years um, yeah, you just got to watch what you eat. I yeah. mean, the older you get, you got to be, unless you're a brown belt in jujitsu, then it's like, I don't want to, things brag. just happen, man. Things, yeah, dude, you got to stay tight. <laughs> um, this is, now this one is a big one. This okay. may be the most important question I've, okay. I've asked you thus far. Least favorite candy. This will say a lot about your character. <sighs> Think carefully, take your time. Golly. I mean, my wife is going to kill me for this, but circus peanuts. She stinking Those loves circus are peanuts. Bad. She likes peeps. She likes circus peanuts. She likes a lot of that food group, we'll call it. You know, I have to confess, <laughs> this is really this question is really my way of getting at one item in particular. Okay. And I need to know if you like it or don't like it. Let's and that it. will determine the course of our friendship from <laughs> here on out. Me being able to actually pronounce your last name in this question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you like black licorice? I'm not a big black licorice fan. Nice. All right. Anything. Black jelly beans, any of that. Nah. It's got to go. Nah. All right. Any final words, any final comments to those who may be listening or watching? Uh, I'm encouraged with everything that I see in certain swaths, I should say, of the evangelical church as it grows in missions grows in better theology. I think books are a ticket to that. Good podcasts. There are certain guys in the evangelical world that you and I both appreciate, from the Kevin DeYoungs to Carl Truman's to Mark Devers, that I'm just hopeful another generation latches onto. So maybe a commendation of their ministries, but an encouragement. I think they're on a lot of the things that I think are going to be so helpful to the next generation. Praise God, brother. Well, that's a good place to stop. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, none of this really matters unless we're being faithful to you. We might as well just turn the lights off and kill the cameras. What we want most from this conversation 
is that your church would be strengthened and edified and equipped to do that which you've called us to do, to complete the mission that you've given us. We Mm. know that we can't do it in our own strength. We know that we can't do it by our own power. We know that we don't have the wisdom within ourselves to, to do the task. We are not sufficient. But Lord God, we know you are sufficient. You are our sufficiency. Mm. Your son, Christ Jesus, has finished work on the cross, his Holy Spirit that you've sent to, to live in us, to unite us, to give us the gifts that we need to do the work that you've called us to. We, we trust in these things above anything and everything else. And Lord, we repent for the times when we don't trust in these things above anything and everything else. So God, we end our time together asking that you would bless this conversation, that you would bless our hearers and our viewers as they listen to this conversation, that they would move forward trusting you more, loving you more, that they would have more hunger uh, for the cause of Christ among the nations, for the glory of God among the nations, that they would pick up and, and read the books that have been recommended, that they would listen to teachers and to podcasts that have been recommended. Uh, and that they would be uh, bold for the sake of Jesus Christ, Mm. that they would count the cost of knowing him and taking the gospel to the nations. And we pray all of this with hearts full of great hope and expectation that you will finish what you started in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.